Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, Will, Penny, and Dr. Smith were busily preparing a time capsule, unaware that off in the dark wastes of the planet, mysterious new arrivals had landed that were soon to threaten their very survival. Now, what have we here? Portable thruster employed in rocket belt flight by Professor John Robinson circa 1997. Hardly the kind of thing I deposit in a time capsule for future voyagers to discover. The Egyptians buried lots of things in their time capsules, Dr. Smith. That's why we know so much about them. Did the Egyptians have time capsules, too? Sure. They called them pyramids. Penny, see if you can find something a little more interesting in that cotton. I think we'd better get back, Dr. Smith. It's getting late. Never fear. Smith is here. You're perfectly safe. Hey, look what I found. Mom's space gauntlet. She wore these the day we left Earth. How exciting. Look again. I think this is something of yours, Dr. Smith. Ah? Ah, this is more like it. Meditations of a Galactic Castaway, being an account of the courage, fortitude, and personal sacrifice of Dr. Zachary Smith. I shall undoubtedly be named to the Space Voyager's Hall of Fame when posterity learns of my brilliance, my courage, my... What was that? It sounded like a wolf to me. Can't be any wolves out here. Oh, yes, there can. Look. All I see are the two moons, and we've seen them before. But never so bursting with fullness. Is that bad? Bad, my dear child. It portends the very worst of evil happenings. The night the witches dance and the misbegotten creatures of doom walk the earth, when the dark and dismal voices. There it is again. It can only be a werewolf. A werewolf? On this planet? Why should this planet be an exception? We'd better go. Wait, maybe the robot can tell us what it really is. Identify animal noises, robot. Animal noises produced by Predator Canis Lupus. Volume and pitch indicate Predator to be in condition of extreme ferocity. Canis Lupus? Yes. Canis lupus, werewolves. We must hurry, hurry. Help me up, my dear. Ah! Warning, warning. Canis lupus in area, warning. We should never have stayed out this late. And whose fault is that? This is no time for idle recriminations. This way, come.
Welcome back, folks, for episode 25 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 25th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Space Croppers. Watch out, Kurt. I just looked outside and there's a full moon tonight. You think it's safe to record or should we hide under our beds? Yeah, well, you forget there's no room under the bed because that's Smith's hideout, you know. we got to keep recording. <laughs> Very fair point, yeah. Well, a few production notes before we begin with the story. The series' most prolific writer, 59-year-old British-born Peter Packer, is back with his ninth script for Lost in Space. His eighth, titled Blast Off into Space, was being held back for the premiere of season two. You might recall his last story that was filmed, Ghost in Space, had elements that reminded us both of those classic universal horror movies. And this one starts off in that direction, giving us, of all things, a werewolf. Packer's original treatment for this one was quite different from what eventually appeared on screen, but it did retain the core elements of the Americana-loving writer's tale of hillbillies in space. Considering the direction Lost in Space was heading, such a concept was bound to happen sooner or later, especially since country-fried shows were popular on TV at the time, especially on CBS, which had two hit series, The Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres, that followed Lost in Space on Wednesday nights. Cushman calls this one atypical for a first-season episode, in that it's dominated by comedy, light on sci-fi action, and even includes some light sexual tension that appears aimed at more mature viewers. (laughs) Light sexual tension? Really? I mean, when Sherry Jackson (laughs) runs her hands down Don's neck, I mean, I think most viewers' thoughts were more hard than light, but that's just me, maybe. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, this would be the seventh directing assignment for 56-year-old Sobey Martin. He would eventually direct 14 episodes of Lost in Space. Helping the nap-prone director behind the camera for the last time was series cinematographer Gene Polito. Highly regarded by everyone associated with the series, as well as fans, Polito filmed the pilot and 24 out of 25 episodes, Magic Mirror being the only exception to date, and that was because of the unusual two-for-one production schedule that was used for Mirror and War of the Robots. I'll save the backstory on Polito's departure from Lost in Space until next time. Oh, I do hope there's something scandalous in it. Spare me the sweetness and light of life on a dreary planet devoid of good (laughs) gossip. I like my scuttlebutt served with spice. Uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. This one was filmed March 2nd through the 11th, 1966, seven days spanning into eight. Old Soby was a friend of Irwin's, so I guess he was cut a little slack for going long on this shoot. The episode aired on March 30th, 1966, and it got a summer repeat on July 20th, 1966. All the regular characters are featured. 49-year-old Mercedes McCambridge was cast in the role of Cropper Mama Sibylla. The actress had an impressive resume before getting lost in space. She won an Academy Award in 1950 for Best Supporting Actress for her debut role in All the King's Men. Later, she was nominated for an Oscar in the same category for the 1956 movie Giant. She won critical acclaim on Broadway in 1964, starring in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Perhaps her most iconic role came in 1973 as the voice of the demon child in The Exorcist. Originally uncredited, she wound up winning a battle with Warner Brothers over the matter and gained the recognition she deserved. 
She went on to have an impressive movie and TV career with nearly 70 credits. That's some juicy gossip right there. I mean, if I were the killer voice in The Exorcist, I'd want credit too. So you go, girl. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could just see them do that too, because, you know, they don't want someone to think of that voice as being, you know, some famous actress that brings with it certain baggage, let alone a woman. Mm. So it's almost like Irwin Allen pretending that the robot's a real robot. He just doesn't want to give credit to the actor inside. But right. that's very selfish from them. So I'm glad she stood up for that. I certainly am too. And, you know, I never would have guessed that was her, even though it sounds so much like her at certain points. But we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. Actress Sherry Jackson was 24 when she played the flirtatious hillbilly daughter, Ephra. Acting from the age of seven on, Jackson had a recurring role in the Ma and Pa Kettle movie series, which must have been good training for this part. Then at age 10, she starred for five seasons as Danny Thomas's daughter and Angela Cartwright's older sister on Make Room for Daddy. She had numerous other TV guest roles before and after Lost in Space, including on Star Trek's 1966 episode, what are little girls made of? Very, very good episode. And that also starred uh, Lurch in that one as well. Yes. Richard Keel. Wasn't that, isn't his name like Richard Keel? No, Richard Keel is Jaws. I, from... I'm always confusing them, okay? <laughs> I know, but, yeah. but the reason it's especially confusing is because there's a character named Keel in this episode, and he's kind of like Lurch in a lot of ways. That's true. And I wish I had my Google up because I cannot remember who Lurch, the actor, oh, was. Oh, it's from... Cassidy? Like yes, Ted Cassidy. Cassidy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Ted Cassidy. There you go. Good shot. Well, also, just a few weeks after appearing on Lost in Space, she starred as the Riddler's Mall Pauline on Batman. Lost in Space casting director Joe D'Agusta took credit for getting Jackson on both Lost in Space and Star Trek. He was quoted as saying that he was madly in love with the actress, and her 36, 22, 35 figure didn't hurt either, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, well, tell him to get in line. She's the first woman on Lost in Space to make me actually think, Judy? Judy who? I know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hard to take your eyes off of her, that's true. <laughs> 29-year-old Dawson Palmer gets lost in space again. We've seen him before, but never quite like this. Normally, he's the go-to guy to wear or <laughs> re-wear one of costume designer Paul Z's monster suit creations, and he does it again, this time in a Wolfman getup. For the first, but not the last time, we actually get to see the six-foot-eight actor's unmasked face on screen playing the role of Keel, the space cropper's son. In this episode, Palmer also gets a screen credit, which is remarkable because in most instances when he wore a monster suit, he didn't get to see his name on screen, which I think is a shame. Just like Bob May inside old B9. Yeah, but, you know, he must have felt a little bit cheated because they pulled the old sky is falling bait and switch routine on him. You know, they promised him this big role, but then he gets a script and he doesn't have any lines. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> oh, the pain. <laughs> yeah. Well... With that, let's get on with the story. The Act 1 teaser starts out with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. The scene opens up outside late at night with Dr. Smith seated on a rock in front of a large open metal cylinder that's half buried in the soil. He's flanked on either side by a kneeling Penny and Will, while the robot observes the action from the side. The children are selecting items from an oversized cardboard box and placing them into the metal container. Turns out that cylinder is in fact a time capsule, and Dr. Smith is rendering judgment on what items are worthy of preserving for posterity. 
I have a feeling I know where this is going. Penny pulls out a small piece of gear that attracts Smith's skeptical attention and causes him to read the attached label. Now what do we have here? Portable thruster employed in rocket belt flight by Professor John Robertson circa 1997. Hardly the kind of thing I deposit in a time capsule for future voyagers to discover. Nevertheless, he hands the device to Will, who dutifully loads it into the capsule, and adds, The Egyptians buried lots of things in their time capsules, Dr. Smith. That's why we know so much about them. Yeah, well, you know, Smith probably should have double-checked that portable thruster to make sure there were no obvious signs of sabotage. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have done that? Yeah, we don't want the future generations to figure that out, would we? No, uh -uh. Uh uh-uh. Smith seems unimpressed by the trivia report, but Penny is. Did the Egyptians have time capsules too, she asks? Sure, says Will. They were called pyramids. Wow. (laughs) We're all learning something today, huh? Yeah. With all this Egyptian talk, I was kind of hoping we'd see a mummy crawl out of that capsule. Yeah, hold that thought. All those gnarled dead trees in the nighttime around them, I'm thinking this is a very universal monster territory, so sooner or later we're going to get something. Hmm. Tiring of the school lesson, Smith asks Penny to see if she can find anything a little more interesting in the carton. But Will's a little concerned about the time. It's getting late, and he thinks they should get back to camp. Never fear. Smith is here. You're perfectly safe. Next, Penny's thrilled to discover a pair of Marines' aluminum foil space gauntlets that she wore when they blasted off for Alpha Centauri. Oh, that's strange. I I could have sworn those were the mitts that the mom used to pull the pet ostrich out of the oven when they first got there on (laughs) Preplanus. My bad. (laughs) They do kind of look like that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm overthinking this, Kurt, but doesn't it seem odd that they choose to discard a rocket thruster and spacesuit gloves? Or have they already given up on ever getting the Jupiter 2 back into space? Well, you know, kids, they treat important space gear like they do their parents' money. The purpose is to get rid of it all as fast as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So true. Well, with a smirk of disdain, Smith snatches the gloves from the girl and tosses them over to Will. How exciting. Look again. (laughs) Reaching back into the treasure box, Penny pulls out a small metal tape canister. She hands it over to the good doctor, adding that it looks like it's something of his. Ah, this is more like it. Meditations of a galactic castaway, being an account of the courage, fortitude, and personal sacrifice of Dr. Zachary Smith. I shall undoubtedly be named the Space Voyager's Hall of Fame when posterity learns of my brilliance, my courage, my... Smith's soliloquy is interrupted by the distant sound of a creature's howl in the night. He gasps, and a look of dread comes over his face, and wonders out loud what that sound was. Will immediately replies that it sounded like a wolf to him. Uh Uh-oh. But Penny says sensibly, there can't be any wolves out here. Want to bet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, What? that would be ridiculous. Why would wolves be on pre-planets? Now, werewolves, that makes sense, but not wolves. I mean, come on. (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, yes, there can, says the rattlesmith. Pointing up to the sky, he tells the children to look up, and we're shown a quick shot of two brilliant full moons shining through the scattered clouds of a midnight black sky. Will calmly replies that all he sees are the planet's two moons, and they've seen them before. Well, maybe the Robinsons have, but we haven't, because this is the first and only time in the series that reference is made to pre-planets having any moons, much less two. It was a nice touch, though, 
And that little clip did intensify a building creepy feeling in this teaser, Kurt, I thought. I thought I liked it too, but I'm going to disagree with you. I think there is another shot somewhere else in the series of the two moons. And I don't know if it's a black and white, and I don't know if it's color, but my kids, they go ahead and they watch these future episodes, and I try not to pay too much attention to them. But I, I could have sworn I saw that scene, and I went, oh, well, so they do have it later on. So uh, I'd be curious to know if our listeners can remember what other episode that would have been, or if I'm just uh, somehow dreaming it. Well, you may not be dreaming it, but it could be that it's when they're on a different planet because you. Uh huh. Big... Okay, that could be. Yep, yep. That's right. They go up. They leave the planet. So, but let's just make this one of those Facebook questions: Is yeah. it another episode where there's two moons? Yeah. Because I tried. I tried to go back to all the black and white episodes and see if I could spot where it was, and I couldn't. And, right. You know, so yeah. No. No. It's a good question. It really is. Well, voice cracking, Dr. Smith retorts that they may have seen the moons before, but never so bursting with fullness. Penny innocently asks if that's bad. Bad, my dear child. It portends the very worst of evil happenings. The night the witches dance and the misbegotten creatures of doom walk the earth with the dark and dismal voices. (gasps) Oh, there it is again. (laughs) Yes, Kurt. Smith informs us it can only mean one thing. A werewolf. Okay, I'm in. If we can't get a mummy, I'll settle for a werewolf. Confused by Smith's terrified rambling, Will repeats dubiously, A werewolf on this planet? But as Smith says, Why should this planet be an exception? Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Will, the boy science genius, doesn't have a problem with believing in werewolves on Earth, only that it's impossible that they be on this planet. Go figure. (laughs) Forgetting all about his earlier never fear mantra, the doctor is ready to beat feet back to the Jupiter, but Will stops him. Maybe the robot can tell them what the sound really is. He orders B9 to identify animal noises. He instantly reports, Animal noises produced by Predator Canis Lupus. Volume and pitch indicate Predator to be in condition of extreme ferocity. Canis Lupus repeats Will? Now, I admit I had to look that up, but I quickly discovered that Canis Lupus is the scientific name for the gray wolf. But Dr. Smith's Latin must be slipping because he tells Will that it confirms his worst fears. That howl is, in fact, the cry of a werewolf. There's no time to lose. They must hurry back to the ship. Well, you know, as Ben Franklin would probably say, all werewolves look gray in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) With help from Penny, Smith gets pulled off his butt and the castaways head back to the ship at a quick pace. The camera tracks them through the dark, moonlit terrain as they wind their way through a grove of craggy dead trees and bushes. Very atmospheric. Mm -hmm. Smith's face is full of fright, even though both children are trying to calm him down, holding his hands as they walk. Suddenly, the robot, arms waving frantically, issues an alarm which stops our space pioneers in their tracks. Warning! Warning! Canis lupus in area! Warning! We should have never stayed out this late! And whose fault is that? This is no time for idle recriminations. This way. Dr. Smith leads the group a few steps further, but unfortunately, he seems to have led them down a blind alley because their path is blocked by a field of giant boulders. Before they can turn around, a dark, growling form lumbers out from behind one of those rocks, just a few feet away from them. (laughs) Petrified with terror, Smith gasps, shoving both wide-eyed Will and a startled Penny between the ferocious creature and his precious skin. 
This time he gets two human shields for the price of one, Kurt. <laughs> yeah. The camera then cuts to a nice quick close-up of that creature's face, and we can see that this Canis Lupus doesn't look like any gray wolf I've ever seen. In fact, it looks very much like a hairy werewolf, complete with deadly sharp claws and glistening pearly white fangs. He, he must be brushing with Pepsodent. What did you think of him, Kurt? Well, he's got the deadly sharp claws all right. Bear claws. <laughs> but, but but I liked it. I mean, really. They they obviously took my advice from last week's show, as well as one of our dogs is missing, and didn't try to skimp with the grease paint and crepe hair plastered over the actor's face. This was a full hair mask, and I'm not sure which movie they borrowed it from, but it kind of looked like uh, I was a teenage werewolf. It could have been. I didn't get a, a read on that, but I do know that it did get recycled. It was just too good for Irwin to use only once, because it would appear... Just a few months later, in the 1966 episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, titled Werewolf, of all things. Oh. Well, I, I was referring to him recycling it from another movie, but I should have known he also recycled it within his own series. Yeah, but, but it's a pretty good-looking mask, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would have done the same thing. But, you know, we were mentioning the other night, like, the only monster that they don't use is really the cheapest monster of all the universal lexicon, and that's the vampire. You never see a vampire in Lost in Space, you know? I mean, and that could have been kind of a cool episode, you know, the space vampires or something, but I guess that was a little too scary for Lost in Space. Mm. Of course, they did use the Invisible Man plenty of times, didn't they? (laughs) The Invisible Monster. Absolutely, yes. While still clutching the children in horror, Smith screams, Look at him straight in the eye. It's the only way to keep him at bay. Maybe he's right, because the camera cuts back to the growling beast for another close-up. And so far, he's not really attacking. He's just threatening with his claws and fangs for the moment. But Will's not convinced that giving the beast a stare-down is going to hold him off forever. If you ask me, a straight shot would be a lot better. Oh no, it would be useless. Well, try it anyway. Blast him, robot. I love this scene. We get both a monster and the robot's electrical bolt-throwing animation. But during the confrontation close-ups, you might notice that the Robinson's eye lines are actually backwards. They are looking terrified to the right of the camera. But during the long shots, we saw that the monster was to their left. Also, when Will commands the robot to fire, he turns to his left, but the robot is actually behind him on the right. This is because they somehow broke a cardinal rule of filmmaking and inadvertently crossed what's called the axis line. That's an imaginary line that goes from one character's face to whomever that character is facing on the screen. Mm. And you're never supposed to cross that 180-degree line. It'll cause a reverse angle shot like the ones that we see in the reaction shots. It confuses the audience, at least at a subliminal level. But of course, that made me wonder if maybe they deliberately did that too, you know, just to add some chaos and some stress to the scene, like they did when they showed that Smith shot out of focus in the last week's episode. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but in this instance, I think it was a blooper because it it just looked weird, not scary, but not weird enough to ruin the overall very cool scene. I'm glad you pointed that out because there was something about that that just seemed wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I've looked at this episode a couple of times, but something about that always bothered me and that that explains it. So That's exactly what it is and that's exactly the feeling that people get. They have a very hard time figuring out what it is, but it's there and they feel it. And of course... Good filmmaking is about being transparent and not calling attention to the filmmaking. So this does the exact opposite of what they're trying to do. Mm, Interesting. Okay. Well, thanks for that. That's great. 
Well, B9 hears and obeys, giving the hairy creature a dose of electrified bolts from both claws. The creature responds with some angry growls, but not only does he stand his ground, he takes a couple of steps closer to our imperiled trio. So William quickly commands the robot to give him another blast. Howling at being zapped by our trusty mechanical friend, it appears that the second shot helped. Well, at least it stunned the monster enough to halt his attack. Wounded, but I'm guessing not mortally, the critter backs away from our castaways and then lumbers back behind the boulders from where it came. As he departs the area, we get a better full body shot of the monster than we got when he first attacked Kurt. I'm just gonna throw you a softball. I think you already alluded to it. Was there anything that looked familiar about that creature as he exited stage right? Well, let's just say the suit's a little unbearable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, okay, here's another question then. I think we've all figured it out. The bear suit has returned, and it kind of works like this, you know. But one thing about it, I recently watched the original The Wolfman movie, and in that movie, I think almost all the time you see the Wolfman, he's got his clothes on, sans shoes because his claws grow out. I'm not an aficionado on werewolf movies, but is that pretty standard? Or do you have Wolfman like the one we're seeing here where he's just all fur, no clothes or something like that? Is that something that's... No, he's always wearing clothes because think about it. I mean, they transform. That's one of the big things about werewolves. So if they're going to transform and they're not wearing clothes, then they're going to be running around naked. You know. Right, now, right. they actually use that motif in a funny way. In the 1980s, when they do uh, a Werewolf of London, not Werewolf of London, but American, American, American Werewolf. Werewolf in London, yes. And they have him, like, you know, transform back and he's naked. I seem to recall that was the scene. Okay. But for all the classic uh, movies, they definitely weren't trying to infuse that kind of slapstick uh, humor in there. And it raises its, its head here in this episode because it's sort of like, well, he keeps wearing the same clothes, and yet he's torn through those clothes several times. So, right. you know, apparently he's wearing the same duds with the exact same patches in the same place. I mean, it's almost like uh, that character in the, the Fly, where he wears the same suit, but he's got like twenty different suits of all the exact same suits. Remember, Goldblum or mm, yeah, yeah. So apparently Keel's got that, but we'll get to that soon enough, I guess. And it has some other funny effects we're going to see very shortly. Okay, well, good. Well, I thought that was kind of interesting. But, of course, you got the bear suit. I mean, that's <laughs> you got to use just the bear suit, you know. <laughs> well, I, you know, you kind of also have to remember that that was a very expensive suit back then, you know. And uh, I think that, if I remember correctly from Philip Norris, the guy who does all the, the costumes for Halloween costumes, he got on the scene because he came up with an inexpensive gorilla suit in the late 1960s and that suit was $500 and that was inexpensive so you can imagine what this bear suit costs so you know Irwin if he's going to spend the money on that suit he's going to get some attention for it he wants people to see it he doesn't want to cover it up with clothes (laughs) plus it would have been very hard because you could tell that's a very big suit absolutely Well, before we go to the opening credits, the camera cuts away from our castaways as they watch the monster retreat. We shift abruptly to an ominous tracking shot of large clawed footprints in the sandy soil. If there was any ambiguity before that the animal who threatened the Robinsons was supposed to be a werewolf, all doubts are laid to rest as we see those impressions in the soil eventually change from monstrous clawed paws to human-sized shoe prints. 
It certainly made the point. But being the nitpicker I am, I just can't resist asking, how did that werewolf change back into humanoid form and slip on those shoes in mid-stride, Kurt? <laughs> well, you know, you've heard of worn shoes, so maybe these are wear shoes. <laughs> well, I'm really surprised that they dropped the ball on that one because just a few weeks ago, I complimented the effects crew when we reviewed Ghost in Space because in that one, they'd made sure to have the invisible Will's footprints correctly depict one foot with and one foot without a boot because as you'll recall, he just lost a shoe in the bog. Am I being too critical here, Kurt? Or is that kind of an obvious blooper as well? Uh, no, no, it was, it was a laugh out loud ending to an otherwise atmospheric monster scene. How could no one on the set point out how crazy that looked? The best I can figure is they didn't want to spend the extra money or time to get a mold of a, a basic foot. Because, you know, y you might think that all you need to do is have someone walk out there, but realistically, when someone's walking, they put a lot more weight on their heel, and then they put more weight on their toes as they're lifting up, and it distorts the, the image, and they wanted a nice, clean image. So, you know, they needed to go get like a mannequin foot or something like that. Two sides, preferably, a left and a right, you know. <laughs> Come on, Erwin, let's spend the extra 25 cents. But uh, it was probably a time issue, and they just figured, hey, let's just use the darn shoes. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I mean, I can kind of see that, that scene in my mind's eye. You know, the, the assistants, they're on the phone, covering the phone receiver, shouting to Erwin, Erwin, they, they say they can make that foot for 50 bucks. And Erwin yells back, is that prepare? The gopher says, no, no, they said per foot. And Erwin tells, tell them to tell the feet to take a walk. <laughs> oh, man. Well, whether barefoot or not, we'll have to wait until we come back from the first break to find out just what this dangerous wolfman is doing on Preplanus, light years from the Talbot Estate in Wales. come back from the main titles, we're given another look at the midnight sky, sporting the two moons of Preplanus still bursting with fullness as the episode's credits cycle across the screen. Well, at least I thought it was midnight, but after the credits end, we cut to the Robinsons' picnic table outside the Jupiter 2, where apparently it's really just dinner time. Dr. Smith, still wearing a look of distress, is gulping down a glass of water which the professor lectures him to go easy on until their pipeline is repaired. I go easy on that water, Dr. Smith, until that pipeline's repaired. The camera pulls back to show the whole family, except for Major West, seated around the table. Smith puts down the glass. Oh, you wouldn't deny me if you knew what the children and I had been through this evening. Well, all I know is it took you half a day to do a job that normally takes an hour. I am not an assembly line worker. Oh, wait a minute, Smith. You... Uh, Dr. Smith, what happened to you and the children this evening? I don't think the subject is appropriate for the dinner table, my dear. Would you pass the mushroom gravy, my dear? Well, it's just some bean gravy that I made. Mmm, delicious. I added some wolf's foot that I found. Smith's smile turns sour, and he involuntarily groans as he drops his spoon. What's wrong, Doctor? Wolf's foot. Oh, that's just the name of a herb that grows on this planet. It's sort of like, um, oh, club moss. It really gives the sauce a nice tang. It gave me a very nice turn. That's because we saw a real werewolf tonight. A what? A werewolf. It attacked us. The camera cuts back to a poker-faced Professor Robinson, glaring in Smith's direction. 
Dr. Smith, is there something we should know? I think we'd best wait until we're all a bit calmer. The children were very frightened. Penny and I weren't so scared, Dr. Smith. It was just you. Be that as it may, the fact remains that had I not faced him down, I'm afraid none of us would be here now to tell the tale. We'd have been devoured. Well, what do you mean? After hearing about the attack, Marine's alarmed and confused, but Professor Robinson seems to be taking this report at face value. In fact, his first question is simply to ask, Are you sure it was a werewolf? Of course I am. Well, of course, we've all read legends, but none of them have proved out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, John, you're such a skeptic. I'm still waiting for the legend of gravity to be proved out, you know? Sure. <laughs> I've heard the rumors, but I have yet to see any gravity. Obviously, then. My research into lycanthropy was far more exhaustive than yours, Professor. Hmm. Well, we learned Smith was an expert on the occult and communicating with spirits, but now we're finding out he's also a werewolf researcher. How long before we find out that he's also a vampire hunter, Kurt? Well, now that you mention it, Smith does seem to be a bit of a monster magnet. He's already attracted an incredible assortment of creatures, stalking him through the darkness of the universal backlot. Most of them are variations on a monster theme, like the mummy-type creature in Wish Upon a Star, or the Invisible Man monster in Ghost in Space, or the ultimate Bigfoot monster, the giant Cyclops. If that's not enough, we also get an entire zoo collection of them in The Keeper. And we still have two more seasons of Monsters to come, including a Frankenstein ripoff, if you recall that one. I don't remember the, the story, but I remember thinking, what the heck is this doing in Lost in Space? Mm. So there's numerous versions of what might best be described as the creature from the back prop room. But <laughs> I don't think we get any vampires, but that's probably because they don't growl and look good in a bear suit. <laughs> yeah. Although we do get Al Lewis, who's a grandpa monster That's at some right. point. That's right. Yeah. The good, <laughs> Playing a good wizard, point. but not a not a vampire. So, <laughs> Yeah, and he does bring a lot to that role, I have to admit. Yeah. This seems a little silly, especially the straight-faced <laughs> way that John treats this whole thing. But I'm sort of getting into this. I, I must have had enough practice going with the flow, Kurt. Yeah, you would have thought that this, in some ways, it just shows what a good actor that John was, that he could keep a straight face for lines like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. John responds to Dr. Smith with a challenge. Well, Dr. Smith, if you believe that men can be transformed into wolves and you actually saw one... I most certainly did. Well, then how about going out on a safari and bringing him back alive? By all means, Professor, go right ahead and good luck to you, sir. Not me, Smith. You. Me? Yes. Well, much as I'd like to, I think I should get back to the pipeline tomorrow. Our water supply is very low. Well, as far as you're concerned, it's going to be non-existent unless you mean it about that pipeline. Of course I do. And now, if you'll excuse me, I must retire. When one works so hard, one requires a great deal of rest. Was it really a werewolf, Penny? Or is that just what Dr. Smith called it? That's what he called it. But it sure looked ferocious. Well, why don't we wait until it shows up again before we decide what it was? And if it does, I'm sure your father will know what to do about it. For his part, John responds only with a raised eyebrow. But I'm sure he'll know just what to do, Kurt, because John always knows what to do. Oh yeah, he's a scientist and they know everything. Except they still don't seem to understand that on an alien planet, they should expect to encounter aliens? You know, I mean, not Earth-like werewolves. Look, if you see a fur-covered wolf-like biped on Earth, then sure, I get it. Maybe you assume it's a werewolf. But on another planet? Why assume it transforms into any other creature at all? It's a furry alien. End of story. 
They, they didn't see the changing footprints. For Smith to call it a werewolf is one thing, but for John to give any credence to that theory on an alien world is just bizarre. But like you say, even when he's wrong, he's right because A, he's Professor Robinson, and B, it turns out that he is a werewolf. So, you know, <laughs> this is lost in space. It's how it goes. It's part of the formula, and we love it for that. Oh, yes. It's how it goes. Next morning, we're at the pipeline work site. Will rushes over to the trench carrying a water jug and approaches a distracted Dr. Smith, lazily pouring sand from his shovel. His arrival was unnoticed by the doctor until he greets him with a friendly, How's it coming, Dr. Smith? (laughs) Startled, Smith moans, I shall probably not survive the day. Work, work, too much work. (laughs) And you know I have an extremely delicate back. Will says he brought Smith something to drink and hands over the water jug. Smith takes a hearty swig while Will checks out the progress on the pipeline. Looks like there's still a ways to go. The little nipper asks if Smith wants his help, because if they could get the pipeline finished early, they could go on that safari to catch the werewolf. Mm. Cutting his eyes away from Will, Smith sighs, Much as I'd like to, I'm afraid this pipeline comes first, and it will probably take me all week. But it'll be too late by then. The moons will wane. With mock disappointment, Smith replies, True, very true. But then they'll never believe that it was actually a werewolf we saw. I can't help that. My report was accurate in all the details. Ah, if only this pipeline were finished, then, my boy, you would see Dr. Smith at his best. Spiking his shovel into the soil to free both hands, Smith puts on a dramatic pantomime show for Will. Stretching out his arms, he boldly acts out how he would stalk, corner, and stare down the beast. Boy, says the wide-eyed Will, he'd sure hate to see Dr. Smith miss out on a chance like that. Will's comments jar Smith back into reality, looking unnerved at the thought of actually seeing that werewolf again. But suddenly our boy genius has a brilliant idea. I know how we can get the pipeline finished and still go on the safari later. Grimacing, Smith asks how. He tells the doctor that they'll need to go back to the campsite and he'll explain. Not liking where this is going, Smith meekly hesitates, but before he can offer another lame excuse, Will grabs his arm and drags him back to the ship. Sometime later, we're back at the worksite, and the image dissolves on a shot of our faithful B-9 awkwardly bent over the irrigation trench, diligently scooping out shovels full of sand. It looks like that would have been tough sledding for poor Bob May inside the robot suit, especially having to hold that spade with those claws. Yeah, they need to forget about the uh, attachment to play chess and come up with a you know a shovel attachment because this isn't the first or last time he's going to be ditch digging. <laughs> no. The camera pulls back to reveal Will and Dr. Smith standing by, watching as the robot struggles to dig that trench. Both of the boys are armed with laser pistols in their holsters, and since this is supposed to be a safari, Smith, the intergalactic fashion hound, is now wearing, of all things, a pith helmet. Lucky they didn't put that in the time. <laughs> Time capsule. Yeah, really. A satisfied Will announces, There, he's programmed to dig 5,000 shovels full. That ought to keep him busy till we come back. Still fixated on the robot's exertions, Smith replies to the boy, Indeed. You're quite an eager little hunter, aren't you? Will nods in agreement and then walks out of the scene. When he's out of earshot, a scowl comes over Smith's face. He cuts his glaring eyes back to the robot and barks, Traitor! Then Smith reluctantly departs the scene for the werewolf safari. (laughs) 
Some time later, the boys arrive back at the site of the time capsule. As they enter the area, Will exclaims in astonishment that the cylinder's been looted. Not only that, but the cardboard box has been ransacked as well. Apparently, everything's been stolen, including Maureen's gauntlets. Well, everything except Dr. Smith's precious voice recordings. Whoever took all those other items must not have recognized how valuable those recordings were because they left them behind, but not in their original pristine condition. We can see the tapes carelessly unraveled from its spool and strung haphazardly around the pried open time capsule. Heartbroken at this outrage, Smith holds what's left of his precious recordings and moans, Oh, my meditations! Look at them ruined! Oh, the pain! The pain! Just then, Will notices something else that's been left behind. Giant, clawed werewolf tracks in the sand. He alerts Dr. Smith, who gasps, then declares firmly, That should be enough to satisfy those doubters. Will's not so sure, though. He says, I don't know. They might just say it was a dog unless we actually caught the werewolf. Okay, couple questions come to mind here, Kurt. A dog? Really? Did you see the size of those paw prints? (laughs) That would have been giant dog, yeah. Yeah, so whatever could have made that would have been just as out of this world as a werewolf. And another thing, it's good that Dr. Smith and Will are armed for defense, but supposing they actually stumble on the werewolf, how exactly they're going to capture it without any kind of trap? I mean, just point their pistols at it and tell him to come along quietly? Yeah, this somehow reminded me of uh, a Winnie the Pooh story where they go hunting for tigers and they have these pop rifles, you know, with corks on the end. Mm. I mean, nothing's going to save them. So I guess Smith just hopes he doesn't find them. And, you know, to be fair, it is daytime, so they're probably safe. Okay. While you're at it, how do you hunt for a werewolf during the day? I may be forgetting some of my werewolf lore, but don't they only take their wolf form at night while the full moon is actually out? Or am I forgetting something else here? No, I think that's right. So, But, I mean, this is another planet still, I mean. Yeah. This is one of many holes that we're going to see in this episode, I'm afraid. (laughs) Okay, okay. Well, Dr. Smith's ready to declare victory and return home the hero, but Will's convinced they need to continue the hunt. He draws his pistol and says they better follow the tracks. Shaking in his boots now at the thought of coming face to face once more with that ferocious wolfman, Smith quakes. Oh dear, I wish now I'd kept the discovery to myself. Will urges Smith to get moving, but then he has to remind the chicken-hearted doctor to take out his gun. He does and starts to go, but then stops and tells the dear boy to lead on. Next, we see the boys are carefully following the tracks of the werewolf through the grove of dead trees and underbrush. The trail is still hot, but then Dr. Smith pauses, announcing, Ah, this is where he started to slow down. How do you know? asks Will. Staring down at the tracks, he declares with authority, The spore is deeper. This is not the first time I've tracked big game, you know. Hmm. I guess it's time for a vocabulary lesson, because I'm not ashamed to admit it, Kurt. I didn't know what that word spore meant. I'm actually not sure if I'd ever heard it before. I don't know if you did, but... uh, Yeah. So here you go, folks. Spore, according to Webster, is a trace or set of footprints by which the progress of someone or something may be followed. Spore may include tracks, scents, or broken foliage. Well, that little exercise also reminded me of an anecdote that Cushman related. Among the many fan letters that Jonathan Harris received... Quite a few were from school teachers who praised the actor's brilliant use of the language, which they said inspired the students to take their vocabulary lessons more seriously. And I thought that was fun. 
I guess it worked on me because it caused me to look up that word. <laughs> yeah, but that was always frustrating for me when the teachers would say that, especially when I would say, how do you spell a word? And they'd say, well, go look it up in the dictionary. It's like, how am I going to look it up if I don't know how it's spelled? Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Continuing heads down as they follow the tracks, our werewolf hunters round a large boulder when suddenly the spore ends. Kneeling down for a closer look, the boys are distracted and unaware as a pair of combat-booted feet step into frame and stop inches away from their downturned faces. Finally noticing those size 13 feet, they raise their eyes and the camera cuts up to a strange-looking humanoid wearing tattered khaki coveralls, a bucket hat, and holding a silver space-age garden hoe. That's how you know it's modern. Well, that was certainly an unexpected sight, especially to Dr. Smith, (laughs) who gasps a shriek of astonishment. But before the boys can react in self-defense, the alien snatches the gun right out of Smith's hands. Oh, boy. Both boys jump up and backpedal away from the tall and silent stranger. But they don't get far before they're backed up against another boulder. Smith characteristically maneuvers himself behind Will for protection from the alien, who aggressively stomps toward the cornered castaways. Will, don't just stand there. Shoot! (laughs) But the dull-faced alien is quicker on the draw than Will. He snatches the gun right out of his hand. Now that they're truly defenseless and at the alien's mercy, Smith decides it's time to start negotiating. He politely explains they have no quarrel with the stranger and that they're looking for a werewolf who's loose in the area. But when he asks if by chance he's seen a werewolf, the mute newcomer responds with a lunge and a brutish grunt. Which causes Smith to gasp yet again. Will states the obvious. He doesn't understand you, Dr. Smith. He's an alien! So Smith decides to attempt to communicate using sign language. Perhaps I'd better use sign language. Now attend, sir. He performs another comical bit of pantomime, contorting his face into his best wolfman expression and using grunts and howls and imitation werewolf sounds. But apparently something is getting lost in translation, because when Smith demonstrates a werewolf clawing move, the alien growls back savagely at the boys and then motions for them to get moving along down the path. The camera tracks along with our captured castaways as they're roughly shuffled and shoved along by the snarling and very unfriendly alien. Before long, they reach a wooden signpost that's covered in unfamiliar alien symbols. For whatever reason, the alien allows the boys to stop walking long enough to get a good look at the sign. We don't know for sure what that placard says, and neither does Will. At least he claims he doesn't. But he tells a bewildered-looking Dr. Smith that maybe it says that this land is posted and we're trespassing. Hmm, yeah, I think that's exactly what it says. Well, the alien grows impatient with his prisoners dawdling by the signpost and shoves them along with another bark. But they don't take too many steps before they're stopped dead in their tracks by an out-of-this-world sight, which causes both boys' mouths to drop open in astonishment. The camera shows us the strange sight that has our castaway so dumbfounded. At the far edge of a large clearing is an odd cabin-sized cylindrical structure that, despite a few flashing Christmas tree lights strung around its upper and lower frames, appears to be anything but high-tech or futuristic. In fact, it looks rather rustic or even primitive. The entire front side of the rusty alien complex is open-aired, 
and we can clearly see there are rocking chairs and tables inside. So it gave the impression this was some kind of dwelling. But at the same time, there are a couple of large rocket exhaust ports protruding from either side of the structure, which indicated this might be part of an abandoned spaceship. Yeah, the funny thing about those exhaust ports is that they're made out of wood. They look like <laughs> barrels. So it's like, I don't know what temperature that fire was that blew out of there, but it must not have been very hot. <laughs> While we're scratching our heads at that, we also catch sight from a distance of another stranger sitting on the front porch of this alien structure. This alien appears to be of the female variety, which made me think that, with the exception of the Toron mother we saw in The Sky is Falling, we really haven't had any other female visitors to pre-plan us yet, have we? I don't think so. Uh... I wouldn't know. It's the beautiful Sherry Jackson. If there's any other females around before, during, or after, I'm just too hypnotized to notice. Yeah, agreed. She really is beautiful. I mean, you have to see it to understand. Yes. And, you know, the the thing about it is, is her beauty isn't this extravagant beauty. It's just this plain beauty. It makes you realize, you know, when they talk about Georgia peaches and, you know, southern draws and something, there's something about it. She seems attainable and she seems kind of pure and innocent, even though she doesn't talk that way in this episode, but she's got that draw. It's mm. very attractive. Yes, she's got it all. And I do like that. It's got that fresh face, natural look about mm-hmm. her, you know. No makeup. You can't tell. That's the best kind of makeup there is, the kind that you can't tell that they're wearing, and you can't tell that she's wearing any makeup. Yes. <laughs> Grabbing the dear boy's shoulder for support, Smith exclaims, Will, this must be moon madness. Golly. Adding to the homespun mood, we abruptly start hearing hee-haw-style banjo music playing in the background. <laughs> Well, Smith and Will get hustled into the newcomer settlement area by the tall male alien. Careful, sir! Careful! I have a very delicate back! Their arrival is noticed by the smiling female, who jumps up from the front porch steps and rushes over to see who's come a-calling. What have we got here? Look at my goodness! What is it? Why, why that's a spaceship! Don't you know nothing? Okay, I guess that answers that then. It's a spaceship. But it's all open. Oh, uh, we got ways of closing it up. Uh, We just keep it that way to be sociable. Now we do get a better look at this young beauty with the lovely but unstyled brunette hair. And that's a good thing, because even though her Daisy Duke cutoff dress is patched and frayed, no one seems to mind because she's got a figure that really makes it work. And as you say, I'm a big fan of Sherry Jackson, especially in that outfit. Uh, She's delightful. Oh, wow. Yeah. But did you notice something bobbing up at the top of the edge of the screen while gazing at her beautiful countenance? It's the... No, Kurt, I didn't notice anything. This is the blooper I told you. I told you I was going to spot a blooper you didn't see. It's the sound boom. It dips into view a couple of times. Did you see that? Interesting. Okay. It happens in other episodes, too, and I didn't notice it, but someone in our webpage comment section of the Space Trader pointed out that when Will and Smith first greet the Space Trader, you can actually see the head of the dog trainer pop up right on the right-hand side of the screen when the dogs first start barking at Will and mm-hmm. Smith as they enter the... And when I went back and rewatched that, I thought, oh my God, that's right in your face. So it's it's very funny. Once you start to kind of notice these things, you start looking for them. And that's while paying attention to her legs. I mean, other details. That's <laughs> when I noticed these other bloopers. 
Yeah. Well, I have to admit, I didn't catch either one of those the first time. I'll go back and have to look for the uh, the boom mic. But apparently, we were all distracted by uh, yeah. <laughs> even the even the editors and the guys watching the dailies. They must have missed that. They probably figured, you know, oh well, everybody's got their eyes on Sherry Jackson. They're not going to notice that. But and I'm, you, but- in all fairness to Judy, they don't have Judy wandering around there with bare legs, you know. No. And uh, so she's revealing a lot more than Judy ever does. So it's a little bit of an unfair comparison. Let's just put that out there. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned the the blooper from the space trader too. That was a that was a good catch. I think that was Mark Purrington who pointed that out. But that was right in your face, like you said, it was amazing. So and that funny thing is, I must have seen that three or four times and I never noticed it. And then the the next time when I was looking for it, it's like, how the heck did I miss that? So mm. you got to give those guys credit. They seem to know that nobody would notice it, even though it's right there. And the guy he pops his head up, he's looking straight at the camera. It's sort of like, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Miss Farmer's daughter asked the male alien, who she calls Keel, where he found those little earther creatures. <laughs> Keel, where did you find these little earther creatures? Fiddling with the boy's laser pistols like a monkey studying a machine gun, Keel looks up and points back in the direction they came from. Apparently, Keel's not much of a conversationalist. In fact, he seems like he might be a few cards short of a full deck. <laughs> you, uh, you was on our land, huh? Your land, indeed. Now, look here, young lady. I don't know where you come from, or what you're doing here, or how you happen to be speaking our language. Oh, I speak all kinds of languages we do. Got to, uh, when you're on the go as much as we are. She's wearing my mother's gauntlet. So she is. His ma's gauntlet. (laughs) And look there. They've got everything that was in our time capsule. Cute little fella, ain't you? He'll get on back to the field and do your plow. We ain't got too much time. He's got our guns. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. You get him back as soon as we're sure you ain't aiming to use him on us. Tussling Will's hair, the girl's tone changes to a sultry one as she asks, Your, uh, your ma got any more like you? You realize, of course, young lady. The name is Ephra. Uh, yes, Ephra. As I was saying... This planet is public domain. So in the first place, we were not on your land. And in the the second place, taking our guns and rifling our time capsule are serious offenses against the galactic laws of property. Ephra listens to Smith's charge distractedly as she runs her fingers over Dr. Smith's velour sweater and his pith helmet as if he were a department store mannequin with more goodies to pilfer. Turning defiant, Ephra says, Never here to know such laws. Besides, we're only going to be here temporary, just long enough to plant us our crops and garner us our harvest, and then we'll get going again. And, uh, as soon as we're sure you won't uh, do us no harm, why, you get everything back like I said before. And, uh, that remarkable contraption is your means of transportation? Offended at having their spaceship dissed as a contraption, Effer pokes Smith repeatedly in the chest and tells him, There ain't nothing wrong with it. It gets us places, all over the Pleiades, and the constellation of the Big Dog, and the constellation of the Southern Fish, and we even went to Earth once. Earth? Yeah. Only I uh, didn't like it because there was too many people like you. Too much fighting and feuding. That's probably because you landed in a primitive area. But if I were with you, acting as your guide, oh, it would be altogether different. I could be ready to leave in one hour. <laughs> one hour. 
Which is absurd. I mean, here's a guy, he, he might have a chance to get off this planet, and he still has to go back and collect his tapes, you know, or what is it? I mean, I just say, I'm ready to go now. That would be me. But, especially with her. <laughs> yes, especially with her. Ephra sees right through Smith's act. With a scoff, she turns her head away in disdain, but before she can speak, the discussion is interrupted by the sharp sound of a mature woman's voice from off screen. Ephra! Ephra, I won't have it! Smith turns towards the hillbilly spaceship. Then we're shown an older but handsome, long-haired brunette woman dressed in a tattered burlap housecoat, wearing a stern look of disapproval and carrying a space-age sawed-off shotgun. Then she marches down the ship's porch steps and approaches the group. She tongue-lashes the girl from conversing with strangers, then harshly orders her to go tend to the brood, whatever that is. Ephra answers, All right, Ma. <laughs> Rolling her eyes, the older woman corrects, It's Mother, not Ma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a lovely exchange. It was really funny, but uh, I also like the staging here because we get all three of the space croppers in one frame, and I thought the image told us a lot about these characters because the two women are in the foreground half-facing each other. Ephra has her gauntlet-covered hands on her hips in a semi-defiant pose as she cuts her eyes and Ma's direction, while the protective mother, shotgun in hand, has her eyes fixed in the direction of our trespassers. And finally in the background we can see Eb, I mean Keel, using his silver hoe to plow rows for their crop. I thought it was a good example of how a picture can say a thousand words sometimes, Kurt. Oh yeah, visually it was very rich. And it was a treasure trove sound-wise, too. Mercedes McCambridge has a very unique voice. When she was younger, she was one of the truly beautiful women whose looks were hidden from audiences as a radio actress. But her acting chops were all too evident. She was heard on Lights Out, in her Sanctum Mysteries, Gangbusters, Murderer at Midnight, and the wildly successful I Love a Mystery series, which also starred uh, Tony Randall. He played Reggie, the Brit. Uh, Orson Welles called Mercedes the world's greatest living radio actress. She could do a lower register voice like Lauren Bacall that sounded seductive or, when she made it raspy, sounded rather creepy. In fact, when she says that last line that you did so well, it's mother, not ma. It actually reminded me a lot of that evil voice she uses in The Exorcist. Oh, it did. Yeah, yeah. I love her. And her voice is great. You're right. That's beautiful. Ephra shuffles out of the frame. Then Dr. Smith introduces himself with a doff of his pith helmet and respectfully asks, How do you do, madam? Unmoved by the greeting and still pointing her weapon in their direction, the cropper's matriarch firmly informs him that they are not at all welcome in the area and invites them to leave at once. With an earnest look, Smith replies, uh, But madam, as I tried to explain to your daughter, we are merely on safari looking for a werewolf. The camera cuts back to a nice close-up of Mercedes McCambridge's face, which I now noticed the makeup artist had given a tasteful beauty mark on her cheek. That seemed a little odd for a hillbilly mother. But then again, unlike Ephra, mother has no country accent either. In fact, her dialect struck me as sort of a classical American stage voice. Did any of that seem out of place to you, Kurt? 
Voice-wise, yes. It was at odds with the hillbilly theme they established with that banjo music <laughs> at the country fried porch setting and the patches on all the youngins' clothes, which I always love the fact that the patches are like plaid, you know? Like, <laughs> where would they get that patch? These are, you know, they wear denim. You have denim patches on denim clothes. But, but I think that they were really going for a backwoods witchcraft theme here, like an old witch in the swamp, that kind of thing. And from, ah. a, from a visual standpoint, a wart would have seemed very appropriate. But I suspect Mercedes might balk at wearing a wart, and a beauty mark would have been the compromise. But that's just conjecture on my part. No, I think that's a good theory. I like it. Yeah, that makes kind of sense. Okay, great. Well, a slight smile crosses Mother's face, and she lowers her eyes as she answers Smith by saying that a werewolf is a very dubious pretext, one that she can hardly accept, adding, Werewolves are the unhealthy machinations of timid little minds. That timid little minds quip has Smith looking quite timid indeed, especially as Mother warns them to be off. Uh, But, madam... Be off, she acidly repeats. The camera tracks along as Mother advances towards our castaways as they meekly backpedal out of the alien's land. As they exit the frame, she adds loudly for them to stay off. Shaking her head, the woman turns around and heads back towards her spaceship. But as she exits the frame, the tense mood is broken by the sight of Plowmule Keel in the background, losing his balance and falling comically flat on his butt. Yeah, he didn't seem to know how to use a hoe, which is probably lucky for his sister. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, boy. Here we go again, folks. (laughs) That is funny, though. With the act coming to a climax, we cut back over to the ship. Ephra is stirring a bubbling space-age cauldron of something. When she adds a little extra to the pot, it really starts bubbling up a storm. Hmm, That's interesting. It kind of ties in a little bit with your witch theory there. Yeah, and that's really the first real clue that she's a witch. You know, the bubble-bubble toil and trouble uh, aspect there. Exactly. Good. She tells Ma that they'll be busting through unless we plant them soon. Mm. We follow the annoyed mother over to a large set of cylindrical storage canisters. As she opens one of the chambers, the music abruptly changes from comical to sinister. With the door open, we can see shelves filled with potted alien plants that look very similar to the kind of cyclamen monster plant that Dr. Smith wanted to take back to Earth for a fortune. Hmm, could this be more recycling? I'll say, if you didn't hear the distinctive cyclamen laughter in that scene, you'll be sure to hear it later on. Yes. Well, speaking of recycling, I should point out that this alien greenhouse is also a recycled prop. It's the four-man bathosphere used in the 1964 Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea episode, The Condemned. I didn't catch that. In fact, I don't even remember that episode. But Sharp Eyes at the Lost in Space fan forum did. So thanks for that, guys. Also, in Paul Monroe's Lost in Space handbook, he identifies Mother's shotgun as the partially recycled weapon from The Sky is Falling and Magic Mirror. Sands that impractical plexiglass stock. Yeah. Well, you know, the space-age plexiglass stock probably wasn't factory. It was a luxury add-on for the hipper space travelers. The hillbillies got the standard stock edition made out of whittled wood. Mother peers inside the greenhouse. A gentle yet creepy smile comes over her face, and she begins cooing to her plants. 
She tells her hungry little devils to be patient. They won't have long to wait. They will be fed very soon. And that really was a very creepy expression she had on her face. Yes, good, good, yes. There were several things that popped out at me in what we saw here. First was the way that she spoke to the plants, almost as if they were able to understand her, and almost as if they were more than just a source of food. I mean, she's a mother. Are these plants also her children, or at least like pets? Then she also referred to the plants not feeding the croppers, but providing for them. I want to come back to that later in the story, but also, I like the way she said that the plants would consume the planet and every living thing. That was certainly ominous, didn't you think, Kurt? Oh yeah, yeah, that got my attention. Inquiring minds want to know. Well, as this dramatic scene closes, the alien mother does indeed tell her oversized blooms that when they have provided for her and her family, all the rest of this land will belong to these hungry little devils. All the planet and everything that's on it. Every living thing. Oh boy, and I thought a wolfman was our biggest concern here, Kurt. We'll have to wait until after this station identification to find out what other dangers await our hapless galactic castaways. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2, we open up on a close-up of Dr. Smith. He's busy recounting to the rest of the family the incredible story of his and Will's brush with the space croppers. There they were, a mother and her two children, a very handsome woman, a widow, I think. She's probably very lonely, not having a man around to help her with her planting and the support of her little family. Oh, I do admire her courage. We can see the gears turning in Smith's head, along with the expression on his face as he paces back and forth. So can Major West as he blurts out with a smirk. And the fact that she has a spaceship that'll get you back to Earth, eh, Smith? John asks whatever happened to the werewolf safari. Yes, what about the werewolf? What does that have to do with all this? Ah, yes, the werewolf. Uh, Meeting this fascinating family drove him completely out of my mind. As a matter of fact, I'm beginning to think he may not even exist. Hmm... Hearing Smith change his mind on that topic causes the professor's eyes to widen, but before anyone responds, the robot shows up. Spade in hand, he reports that Slit trench dug, pipeline laid, water supply by gravity feed now available. Smith receives the news with satisfaction. Thank you, dear boy. That will be all. However, the report causes Don to shake his head. Is there nothing you'll do to get out of work, Smith? Come on, Don. (laughs) You really don't have to ask that. Will defends the good doctor, admitting that it was his idea to use the robot as a steam shovel. I love the way that everybody just drops it at that point. It's sort of like, you know, Will can do no wrong, Smith can do no right. That's basically... Exactly. Smith remains silent, but shoots the Major a triumphant stare. Don doesn't give Smith any satisfaction. Instead, he changes the subject, asking just exactly where is this fascinating family? They'd all like to meet them. Oh, you will, you will. They need a little more time to settle in. They're not quite ready to receive visitors. Oh, is that what they said, asks John. Yeah, with a shotgun, says Will. Smith doesn't elaborate. Instead, the scene closes in a knowing close-up of his scheming face, which lets us know he's got bigger plans for himself and that handsome alien mother. (laughs) 
Sometime later, Don and Judy exit the Jupiter airlock, carrying supplies. Their small talk is interrupted when Judy gasps at something. It's our old hillbilly visitor, Keel, and he's got sticky fingers because he's raiding the garden for all the choicest little green onions he can stuff in his pockets and mouth. Don tells Judy to stay put by the hatch, then races over to the garden, shouting for the dim-witted klepto to get away from their food supply. In the process, he shoves the pig-headed pilferer away from the trays, but this causes Keel to react angrily and lift the major clean off his feet and over his shoulder. For a moment, I thought Don was about to be launched into orbit by the oversized alien oaf, but just at that moment, Ephra runs into the camp, carrying a pail. She uses her free hand to beat on her boneheaded brother's arm and yells loudly for him to put Don down. It takes several shouts and love taps from Sis, but eventually Keel drops Don, who lands comically on the ground with a thud. As Major West picks himself up and dusts himself off, Ephra berates her brother to mind his manners when he's visiting. Keel remains silent at the abuse he's getting from Ephra, but continues to glare menacingly at Don. I, I gotta say, Don was either pulling his punches for a fellow actor, or else he fights like a sissy. That was the fakest fighting scene I've ever seen. He had both his arms free, but he didn't deliver a single decent blow. In fact, Ephra hit her brother better than Don did. <laughs> He needs to forget about the onions and eat more spinach. Yeah, that one didn't hold up very much. That wasn't too convincing. Well, the camera cuts back to the Jupiter hatch, where a silent Judy now appears to be more than a little concerned at this turn of events. He's, uh, he's kind of hungry. Fiddles is in short supply till we get us our crop raised. Uh, are you the family that, uh... Me, Ma, and, and him. Suddenly... Ephra's tone and the music goes from a little frivolous to very flirtatious. Now you're a real handsome one. She moves closer to Don, sliding right into his very personal space. (laughs) The Major's uncomfortable reaction is priceless because he's clearly thrown off by the sudden change in mood. One moment he's getting a Mongolian wrestling drop from Andre the Alien Giant. The next he's getting a very unsubtle aggressive pass from this gorgeous gal in cutoffs. I loved it. Yeah. You and all the other males in the audience. Uh, Yowza. Well, one person that's not loving it is Judy, taking in the sight of scantily dressed visitor number two, making obvious moves on her man is all she wrote. She drops the gear she's been holding, then scrambles over to the garden. Does your face always hot up and turn red when you're spoken to? Ephra runs her fingers through Don's hair and is now practically grinding up against the tongue-tied major. Nervous, but obviously not objecting to the alien girl's attention, he just sheepishly grins back. That's when jealous Judy shows up, breaking Ephra's sexy little spell over Don. I'll answer that. And the answer is to keep your hands to yourself, whoever you are. What's going on here? Who are these people? I don't know. We're your new neighbors. Oh, ran out of uh, seasoning powder for us, too. Be much obliged if you could loan us some till we get us a crop of vittles. Sure. Certainly. Judy, please go and get her some more seasoning, will you? Is there anything else we can do for you uh, until you get your own vittles? Oh, we don't have very much, but we'd gladly share what we do have. <sighs> Just the seasoning, thank you. 
Ephra nonchalantly passes her bucket over to the clearly incensed Robinson girl. Judy takes it without a word, slings it over her shoulder in disdain, and sashays out of the frame to retrieve some spices as asked. Wow, you could just feel estrogen bolts being shot back and forth between those ladies. It was really a great job of acting by both Marta Kristen and Sherry Jackson. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting more and more jealous of Don. Exactly. That performance certainly got Professor Robinson's attention because he watches Judy prance back to the ship with a look of recognition, but wisely decides not to dare get into the middle of this potential catfight. It's a right pretty vehicle you got yourself there. Must have been to a heap of places. No, just uh, Earth and here. But we do hope to get off soon. Well, I hope not before we get us our crops raised. A confused look comes across John's face. That causes Ephra to realize the slip. She quickly smiles and covers by saying that... Oh, well, uh, what I mean is, uh, well, you can all come over and join us for a meal. Ma's a right good cook. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Perhaps we could uh, trade recipes. I don't know about that. Uh, you might have a little trouble following Ma's directions. Oh. <laughs> Just then, Judy saunters back into the area and silently hands over the pail of seasoning to Ephra, who accepts it with a fake smile of appreciation while knucklehead Keel is still munching on those little green onions he'd pinched earlier. You know, FYI, both dogs and wolves like chewing on grass, so I wonder if... Hmm... The camera cuts quickly back to Dr. Smith, who emerges from the ship and pauses by the Jupiter airlock to observe. Switching back to a close-up of Ephra, the alien girl dips her finger into the bucket of seasoning, then places it slowly into her mouth, taking a good, thoughtful taste. Mm. Ephra, you're hired. As a cook, that is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I try to keep the show from getting any worse than the PG-13 rating, Kurt, and maybe my mind's yet again in the gutter, but that seemed very clearly to be an obvious risque illusion. Am I right, or were the sexual overtones here just out of control? Or They were. They were. They were. It was out of control, but, you know, it makes you wonder, why did they allow this to go on, but they cut back on the monsters, you know? I mean, I thought this was much, much beyond the pale by 1960s standards, but, but I'm yeah. glad they included it. You know, my, my answer is more of both, but, you know, I'm not yeah. running the show. Smacking her lips in satisfaction, Ephra declares that... Tastes right, sharp. Much obliged. Ephra, my dear girl. Well, what a pleasant surprise. Have you all met this charming young lady and her stalwart brother? We have. Yes, well, I guess we'd better get going now. Kill? Ephra grimaces with suspicion at Smith, but he doesn't seem to notice or care. Ephra's ready to get going, but she can't get Keel to stop looking at the Robinsons' garden, so she decides to give him a loving, sisterly slap on the face that finally jars him to attention. Keel! <laughs> give your dear mother my kindest regards. I did so much enjoy meeting her. Didn't look like you enjoyed it. Before she leaves, the grinning Ephra turns her attention back one last time to Major West. In an extreme close-up, she leans her face in just an inch away from a tense Don's lips, strokes his cheek, and breathlessly says, 
This final uncomfortable moment brings raised eyebrows from John and Marine, a smirk from Judy, and a look of absolute normalcy from Smith. Everyone lets it pass without comment, and Ephra departs the Robinson camp, hip-swinging for all they're worth, followed by her cloddish brother. Yeah, well, I wish I could let it pass without a comment, but if I made a comment, you just have to edit it out at this point. (laughs) (laughs) With the act drawing to a close, it's later that night. We're back inside the lower deck of the Jupiter. We can hear the sound of strange chants and tribal drums coming from outside. You know, they really need need to install some soundproof panels inside that ship, Kurt. It's amazing. Yeah, it's bizarre. The commotion coming from outside wakes up the Robinsons. John, Maureen, and Don emerge from their cabins and are mystified by the weird sounds they're hearing from outside the hull of the ship. John's not sure what it is, but he says it sounds like a war dance of some kind. Don says he'll grab the guns and wake up Smith. Not sure what all this means, Kurt, but we'll have to wait until we return from the break to find out. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Hey, hey, Susie Q, what's cooking with you? Your teeth look whiter than new, new, new. My teeth aren't new, but my toothpaste is new Pepsodent. Get with it, kids. New package, new flavor, new formula, too, means brighter smile for me and you. You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. The new formula with IMP gets teeth much whiter. You can see it cleans the stains and film away while Erium fights to Decay. You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. The taste is new, so fresh and clean. That new taste really lasts, it's keen. And while it makes your smile a rave, it also makes your breath behave. So start going steady right away with Pepsodent. Get some today. You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. 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 When we return from the commercial to start Act 3, it's late at night, and we can hear the sound of that weird alien war chant wafting through the still night air. Illuminated by the light from the planet's two moons, Dr. Smith emerges from behind a boulder. For once, he's leading from the front as he guides Don, John, and Marine into the space cropper's settlement. The fearless foursome pause at the edge of the area. Then the camera cuts over to their hillbilly spaceship, where Keel, holding two large lit candles above his head, tramps down the porch steps, and the camera follows him as he proceeds zombie-like over to the alien's plantation plot. Unaware of the castaway's arrival, we can now see that it is, in fact, the croppers who've been singing that chorus of ceremonial chants. Mother and daughter are busy sprinkling fertilizer from their buckets around the roots of their now-planted young crop. We can see dozens of oversized tulip bulbs and daisy blooms on knee-high stalks arranged in careful rows as Keel continues to circle trance-like around the alien's garden. All those jungle drums had a Haitian voodoo vibe to them, although I'm not sure who was supposed to be playing them. Maybe they had illegal immigrants trapped in those large barrels pounding to get out. It didn't make a lot of sense, but it did look and sounded very atmospheric. 
It did. And I wondered the same thing. Who's beating the drums? Yeah. So anyway. Their labor and their chants are interrupted when the bemused Robinson party steps forward and approaches the edge of the plantation. As the camera pans vertically to give us a better overall view of the scene, Ephra looks up. Noticing the uninvited guests, she barks. You should not uh, come. Earthly folks got no business here. We heard the chanting and we thought you wouldn't mind if we dropped in. Rising up with a look of scorn, Mother brings the mood down by replying that We wouldn't mind if you dropped out the same way you dropped in. May I compliment you on your singing, Madam? Glorious, glorious. <laughs> Madam seems a little put off guard by the compliment, but doesn't respond directly. Instead, she turns her irritated gaze back towards Professor Robinson, asking, What do you want? We're interested in your planting methods. Curious about your crop. Your curiosity has no business here. You'll find out soon enough, I reckon. Uh-oh. Sensing a threat, Don asks... What does that mean? Ephra softens and slides close to the Major. Licking her lips, she asks... How bad do you want to know? Mother warns the bewitching beauty that... I'll burn your tongue out. Yikes. <laughs> that was harsh. Yeah, I think a spanking would be more appropriate. May I volunteer? <laughs> <laughs> What we do on our land is exclusively our affair. Agreed, but... No buts. Buts invariably lead to explanations, which I do not choose to give. Now we'll have no more talk and no more visiting. We like to be alone. Smith nods along in self-righteous approval. I couldn't agree more, madam. We are all entitled to our solitude from time to time. I've no time for such nonsense. Now get off my land, all of you, and be quick, or I'll sick keel on you. On cue, the smiling dullard steps forward and makes a very wolfman-like growl at the castaways. Hearing that growl made me suddenly wonder, Kurt, is Keel our werewolf? He seems the likely suspect, based on his earlier grunts and growls, but it's never been explicitly confirmed. And if he is the werewolf... Why is he still in humanoid form after dark with those two moons still bursting in fullness? Ah, good point. I forgot about those moons, but to be fair, they didn't show them during this scene, so maybe they haven't risen yet. And that could explain why Keel had the candle torches to give them light. Ah, okay. That's a good point. Yes, so we're helping out with all kinds of good continuity here, aren't we? Yes. It helps uh, mitigate all the times we tear it apart. <laughs> <laughs> John braces up and issues his own warning for the aliens not to try anything, then orders his worried party to fall back. Before they retreat, Ephra places a leaf in the collar of Don's sweater vest. For remembrance, she says. He pulls it out to examine it as he walks away. Hmm. I wonder what kind of leaf that was. Yeah, me too. Wearing a hopeful face and lagging behind the others is the ever-persistent Dr. Smith. Mother seems irked, asking him what he's waiting for. That was just the opening he needed. His face brightens, and he saddles up to her. Ah, what strength of purpose you have, madam. There's nothing I admire more in a woman than rugged individualism and determination. I regret I can't return the compliment, if that's what it was. I don't see anything about you worth admiring. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> As the music signals, the mood has flipped again on a dime, from threatening to whimsical, failing to be put off by her hard-to-get act. Ah, madam, if you knew me better. Thank you. 
But no, thank you. You will give me the honor of letting me call on you again? Tomorrow? Why? With a cavalier nod of the head, he answers. Well, for a neighborly chapter. Imitating his gesture, she coldly answers that... I've no time for chats or neighbors. Go! With a little lunge in Smith's direction, she tells him to... Get lost. The doctor's face falls and he gulps a quick, yes ma'am, then scurries back to the ship. As he scampers off their land, we can see that Ephra is quite amused by Smith's spurned efforts to court her ma. Then the aliens return to their work and resume their chants. But something tells me that with a trip back to the green hills of Earth at stake, Smith won't be put off that easy. Oh, wow. He was shot down in flames. If he dares to come back for more, old Smith would deserve the Harvey Weinstein Achievement Award for sexual harassment. I mean, this is <laughs> hardcore. It is. Look out for those ficus plants. Oh, that's an obscure reference. We don't... <laughs> <laughs> Next morning, we're with Will and Dr. Smith as they pull a cart full of gear along the sandy path. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Stopping for a momentary rest, Will says he doesn't understand what the good doctor expects by giving them all this stuff. With an angelic expression of piety, he replies, Nothing. Only the exalted feeling one gets when one does things for others, particularly when it's such a deserving little family. Looking dubious, Will answers, All right. As long as all you want out of it is a good feeling. What else would I want? Ah, uh, what else? But then, Smith turns his gaze away from the boy. Cutting to the Cropper settlement, we're shown an amazing sight. The entire brood of knee-high alien plants has morphed overnight into a plantation of familiar-looking monster-sized plants. Warning, warning, recycle alert! <laughs> I say recycle because, again, we're shown a forest of those same creepy monster plants from Attack of the Monster Plants, along with some of the giant spore props that infested Jimmy Hapgood's ship in Welcome Stranger. And the same sound appears as well. We hear some. Of, we hear both sounds mixed together. Yeah, we do. I like the sounds, and I like the look of all those things. And I guess I really can't blame the producers for using them again in this episode. They're, they're really nice props, and I'd have had a hard time resisting a reprise of them. Do you feel the same way? Or? Well, you know, it's weird because their weakness is kind of their strength. They come with so much baggage because the last time they duplicated people and this time they don't. You kind of forget that detail though. You just remember that they were dangerous. So when you see them, your first reaction is, uh-oh, there's that evil ivy. Mm-hmm. Well, seeing that forest of monster plants, Smith asks, Do you see what I see? Yeah, says Will. Unless it's more of that moon madness. Cautiously, our pair of castaways enter the aliens' campsite. Both the mother and her daughters are strolling through the fields of their supersized plants, admiring the fruits of their labors. Smith and Will approach, noticed by the matron who keeps her back to her suitor. She blandly greets them with a, Look what the wind blew in. Don't you ever take no for an answer? If I did, dear lady, I'd give up one of the rare pleasures of my existence. A chance to gaze at you in all this splendor. Oh, I'm quite dazzled by it. <laughs> well, there's a lot to be dazzled by. In addition to the metamorphosis that the plants have undergone, both mother and daughter have also transformed. No longer wearing tattered garments and unstyled hairdos, both women are wearing beautifully styled coiffures, 
extravagant diamond jewelry, and long, chic evening gowns worthy of royalty. In addition, we can see lurking in the background, Kiel's also wearing regal-looking garb. It's quite a contrast between their earlier appearance, and it made me wonder, what exactly is going on here? So remember earlier, Kurt, when I keyed on the word that the alien woman used when she spoke to her blooms, providing for her and her family? Mm-hmm. Here's my question to you. Are these monster plants relatives of the ones we saw in Attack of the Monster Plants that could duplicate objects? In addition to food, are these croppers getting material possessions from these weird plants? It seems so because based on what I'm seeing, there's no other explanation for how they change their outfits and their hairs. Perhaps this is a deal that they've made with this invasive vegetation. Give us new planets to devour and we'll provide you with the riches that you desire. Wow, I never thought of that before, but I like the cut of your jib. It kind of makes sense, too. I just thought they dressed up in those nice robes as part of a black magic ceremony, like a quasi-religious ritual. They sure didn't provide us very many breadcrumbs to lead us to either conclusion, but I like yours anyway because it provides some answers. Well, it's like so many of the things we ask about Lost in Space. They just either don't comment on them or there's no real explanation for them, and you're just supposed to take it at face value. Anyway, we can all have our little theories, I suppose. Well, stepping away from Smith, the dear lady asks Will, does he ever stop talking? (laughs) The boy asks, can't you tell when you're not welcome, Dr. Smith? Faint hearts never won fair ladies. Come along. Smith scampers up the steps to the cropper ship, and even though the ship looks the same, the furnishings have now also been transformed from simple rocking chairs and tables to plush leopard skin lounge chairs and expensive side tables. Whoa, 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 whoa. Blooper alert here. Before Smith and Will leave the right of the screen, we see Keel in the background walking off into the orchard to the left. But when it cuts to Smith and Will reaching the spaceship, Keel is already there and he's munching on something. Oh. Then again, maybe this isn't a blooper. Maybe it's a clue, one of those breadcrumbs. Maybe they're duplicating themselves with those plants, just like they did in episode 14, only these hillbillies are cannibals who eat their clones. Which creates an interesting paradox. Does that make them meat eaters or vegetarians? <laughs> That's funny. It does work out, though. It does work out. I hadn't thought of that. Oh, all kinds of possibilities. We just keep peeling back a little green onion yes. layer by layer, don't we? Approaching the matron as she reclines on her chaise lounge, he compliments her on her cozy little home and asks if he may join her. He wishes to satisfy his deep hunger for beauty by gazing on her a little more. She allows it, and then he formally introduces himself. My name is Zachary Smith. I'm underwhelmed. I suppose now you want to know mine. If I may. I am Sibylla. Sibylla. Smith rushes to her side. That's beautiful. There's music in that name and poetry. Like a great work of art, it's a name I could live with indefinitely. (laughs) Will spoils the mood by pointing to a large nozzle on the side of the ship. This must be your exhaust. Must you? Well, I don't see why not. It's a lot more sensible than what you've been saying. You've got a point there, Sonny. What was that about... uh... A work of art. Your name, Sibylla. It's a name I could live with indefinitely. In close harmony with my own. Zachary, Sibylla, Sibylla, Zachary. <laughs> Facing. What kind of fuel do you use? 
It's our own special brand. Well, I guess you'll be leaving soon, now that the crop's in. When our plants have been fed all the nourishment this planet has to offer. What kind of nourishment? If the boy's dull agricultural talk is annoying to you, Sibylla... That's how we live, by agriculture. It's not his talk that's dull. It's yours. It wouldn't be so if you would permit me to say what is in my heart. Well, say it. And be quick. I've thought about you a lot and the terrible burden of responsibility which you carry alone. Yes, well, I'm not complaining. But think what an added joy it would be if you had companionship. Someone to stand beside you as you traveled Earthward yeah. or any other place in the galaxy. Someone to share your labor in the fields, to be a father to your children. Oh. Perhaps I spoke too soon, Sibylla. No, not too soon, Zachary, old boy. Just too long. The soliloquy seems to be falling flat, leaving Will shaking his head in disgust and old boy Zachary pondering exactly where he stands with his potential soulmate and ticket off this benighted planet. You know, it's silly on one level, and it ruins the sense of danger and suspense that this episode is otherwise building. But on a comedy level, this budding romance, uh, no pun intended, it is gold. Mm. Smith is completely humiliating himself before her, and her deadpan put-downs are hilarious. On an intellectual level, I want it to stop. Stop dragging my serious sci-fi show into this campy comedy gutter. And yet it's so funny, I can't stop from laughing at it. And let's face it, it's hard to execute a clown, especially when you're trying to aim straight at their big tomato nose and they keep making you laugh and shake. But why can't they be mimes? Mimes are, they're quiet, they're obnoxious, they're easy to shoot. But funny clowns, we may hate them, but we also love them. And I just can't pull that damn trigger. Me either. I I hear you. I can't do it either. Well, later, we're in a sandy clearing with Will seated on a rock ledge and the faithful robot standing by as Dr. Smith holds court. He orders B-9 to put his best foot forward and provide him with a few extrapolations on compatibility. <laughs> this should be interesting. The robot says, Compatibility, a state of happy coexistence between two objects. This causes Smith to scowl. Not objects, you deplorable dunderhead. Sensitive souls. In this case, myself and a certain... Lady. Smith takes a few steps, facing away from B9, and then the examination begins in earnest. Your IQ. Hers. Remarkable. Are you generous, sympathetic, calm in emergencies? Always. The lady. Yes. That's what I find so fascinating about her. Spinning around, the doctor slides back to the mechanical matchmaker's side. Do you enjoy each other's company? We revel in it. When we're together, the outside world ceases to exist. Golly, Dr. Smith, that's like being in a trance. Hush, my boy, this is very important. But Dr. Smith's not going to get the answer he's looking for because the robot reports... Information received, highly suspicious. Such perfection is too good to be true. Computers reject the challenge. With a frowning look of disgust, Smith barks... Of all the incompetent moronic lumps. Well, maybe you did tell a couple of whoppers about yourself, Doctor. I did nothing of the kind. It's not my fault that this fugitive from the scrap metal yard is incapable of assessing my virtues. Stepping over to the seated dear boy, Smith assumes a self-assured grin and tone. In any case, I didn't really need to know. I have absolute confidence in my powers of persuasion. 
Turning back to smirk at the robot, Smith snaps his fingers and storms out, leaving us and Will giggling yet again. Yeah, my favorite whopper was his answer to, are you generous, sympathetic, calm, and emergency? He says, <laughs> always, always <yeah>. not. <laughs> back at the Cropper spaceship, Princess Afra is absentmindedly eating grapes while Queen Sibylla is absorbed in touching up her makeup. Ephra sits down on the porch steps and asks why Ma is fooling with that. She's pretty enough the way she is. The two women have a little discussion about the matron's rascally Romeo, Dr. Smith. Sibylla relates Smith's compliment about how radiant she looked watching her little green things grow, which causes Ephra to knowingly ask if she's going to tell Smith the truth about those precious plants. The mother continues to make herself beautiful and says that what he doesn't know won't hurt him. Mm-mm. The daughter thinks all Smith's sweet talk has had an effect on her ma. Sibylla won't admit it, but with a big Cheshire grin, she does concede that it's been a long time since she's been flattered the way our old master of B.S. Smith has been doing. I was getting the impression that she realized Smith was pouring it on thick, but she liked hearing it enough to go with it. Is that how you read it? Oh, Roger that. That's a big 10-4. Sibylla recognizes that Smith is basically a, a scheming little shit. <laughs> but she's so hungry for compliments and flattery that she starts to deactivate her hilarious sense of sarcasm and lower her shields from his advances. So she's basically suffering from nature's cruelest yet longest-running joke on the feminine sex. Men can't live with them, can't reproduce without them. Oh, man. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> Still sporting a dreamy smile, Sibylla thinks out loud, if those little green things would settle for six delicacies instead of seven, she might take Zachary along with them. After all, she says, a woman needs sweet talk from time to time. Oh boy, so I guess when she said those plants devour every living thing, that included human beings. Feed me, Seymour. Yeah, really, all the subtle hints are replaced with that one very obvious line, aren't they? Delicacies, yes. Right on cue, that sweet talker Smith shows up carrying a bunch of flowers and sporting an ear-to-ear smile. He calls out, greetings, in a twittering, high-pitched voice that causes Ephra to roll her eyes in distaste. But Sibylla appears overcome with anticipation at another round of endless adulation from her courtly admirer. Smith curtsies and with a flourish presents his madam with a bouquet as a little token of his esteem. Sibylla sniffs the flowers and judges them not very fragrant. Well, it's the best I could do. None of us have your green thumb, Sibylla. Ephra's been trying hard to ignore the syrupy courtship, but hearing that obvious, insincere fawning causes her to exhale in disgust and turn away. Sensing trouble, Smith asks if there's something wrong. Yeah, you, says the girl then leaves the two lovebirds by themselves. You know, just a heads up to all future parents out there, Ephra is acting exactly like all kids would behave if they witness what utter fools we make of ourselves while courting their mothers. They actually are grossed out and disgusted by it. I'm convinced it's the main reason parents have kids after falling in love, because the presence of kids is such a natural buzzkill to love, you know? Indeed. Sibylla doesn't react at her daughter's jab, but Smith timidly says, What a pity. I thought she liked me. 
Still smelling those not very fragrant flowers, the Merry Widow says, Well, there isn't a great deal about you that's particularly likable, Zachary. <laughs> Boy, is that the truth. Ah, but I improve with time, Sibylla, as I'm sure you'll learn. Given the opportunity, I could make you very happy, my dear. Smith cups the lady's hand and continues to whisper sweet nothings. Tell me truly, dear heart, dare I hope that someday soon you and I will clasp hands, gaze into each other's eyes, and find happiness? Leaning in closer to his object of desire's face, Smith accidentally bumps into the bouquet and instead of finding happiness gets an eye full of flowers and a sneeze. <laughs> the mother cropper suggests that Smith try some more of that sweet talk, but this time, make it good and sincere. <laughs> batting his eyes in mock piety and bringing the flowers next to his cheek like a very unmasculine cherub, he replies. I could never be anything but sincere with you, Sibylla. Needless to say, Sibylla's no more impressed with Smith's wimpy act than we are because the scene ends with more comedy as she turns her head away, letting out a long, Back at the Jupiter campsite, Major West is outside tending to the Robinsons, little green things, in their hydroponic garden. We hear the sound of approaching footsteps, which gets Don's attention. The camera cuts away and we see rounding the corner of a boulder the all-dolled-up version of sexy little Ephra. Catching sight of Don, she smiles, slows down, and puts a little more hip shake to her sashaying before pausing just a few steps away from him. The Major looks a little apprehensive at her unannounced arrival, but that doesn't stop his eyes from giving her the once-over. But he must have gotten an earful from Judy since Ephra's last visit, because instead of giving her a friendly welcome, Don keeps on a tight poker face, then pointedly asks what she's come to borrow this time. In a breathy voice and a tilt of her head, the girl says, She ain't come to borrow. Now that their crop's in, they got everything they need. Well, almost everything. Yeah, exactly. Is that a carrot in your hydroponic garden, or are you glad to see me? (laughs) (laughs) Don allows a little grin and says that's good. He guesses they'll be leaving soon. Ephra frowns and accuses him of being glad to see them leave. Well, they haven't exactly been friendly neighbors, now have they? Stepping into Don's personal space again, she starts stroking Don's shoulder. Using a seductive tone, Ephra says, She could be right friendly, if only he'd let her. (laughs) Why, they could go places together. Anywhere his little old heart desires. I bet every red-blooded American man in 1966 was thinking the same thing I was. Unfortunately, there don't seem to be any no-tell motels on pre-planus, so if that's what Don was thinking, I guess he's out of luck. Well, you know, they can always take those walks like he did with Judy all the time. (laughs) Just just saying. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Sensing she's having the desired effect on Don, Ephra steps away, easing up on the accelerator, which only causes the Major to pursue her. It looks like she's got him eating out of her hands now. She continues daydreaming aloud. Why, they could settle down any place, do a little planting, and live off the fat of the land. Don't that sound inviting? Don nods his head in agreement, but despite Ephra's best feminine attempts at temptation, he adds, just not for him. Turning angry, she asks, why not? He brusquely tells her because he's got other plans. Taking her roughly by the arm, he escorts her a few paces away from the garden. Releasing her, he strongly suggests that she be 
a good little girl and go back where she belongs. I gotta say, he was more than just a little rude Ephra. He manhandled her pretty roughly, which by today's standards is assault. Hands off the merchandise, Don. You break it, you buy it. Humiliated and enraged, Ephra threatens to put a spell on Don. Don's unimpressed and doesn't take her seriously, telling her to go ahead and try. He excuses himself, leaving the scorned Princess Cropper alone and empty-handed. In a huff, she turns on her heels to leave, but then stops when she spots Will Robinson, who's busy giving the depowered robot a little tune-up at the far edge of the camp. She steps over to speak with the boy, who greets her with a friendly, Hi! Wearing a false smile now, she answers back with a, Hi yourself, cute little fella, and tussles his hair again. Ephra coyly asks the boy for a small favor. They're going to be leaving soon, and she'd like to give Don a gift as a token of remembrance, but the only thing she needs is a little something of his to go in it. Will naively asks her what she needs. Leaning down to get face-to-face with the boy, she says, Oh, nothing special, just an itty-bitty lock of Don's hair, that's all. So she can weave it together with a lock of her hair and make him a hair ring. Hmm, that's sounding a little bit like some voodoo mojo there, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Will asks her why she doesn't just ask Don for it herself. Exasperated, she says, it wouldn't be a surprise if she did that. Will's not sure about all this and seems reluctant to go along with her request, and I don't blame him (laughs) one little bit. Come on, what possible excuse could a 12-year-old boy give a 30-year-old man to hand over a lock of his hair that wouldn't seem weird or at least suspicious? It'd make more sense to have Penny do that, but then again, we've hardly seen Penny since the dinner after the werewolf attack at the start of this episode. So that whole tactic just didn't make much sense to me, Kurt. Yeah, well, you know, what you just said there, that's why men are perceived to be like simplistic dogs, why women are seen as cunning cats. As Smith would say in his uh, Andronican report, you need a bit more guile. Ephra's not intending for Will to ask Don for hair. She wants him to steal it, the same way that she would do it if she lived on the Jupiter too. Will's supposed to sneak into the cabin and remove the hair from his comb or sink drain or even cut it off while Don sleeps. Come to think of it, you know, I've never seen Don's cabin, have you? I've seen Will's, I've seen Judy and Penny's, I've seen Zach's. I've even seen where Professor Robinson writes his journal, but I've never seen Don's room. Does he even have a room or does he sleep up there in the bubble on the top of the ship? Maybe in the freezing tube. That's a good point. I don't yeah. I don't know. We've never seen his room, have we? Weird, hmm. yeah. But that's a good point. I guess she was expecting him to steal it because that's what she would do, right? Yeah. I mean, she definitely looks like that's what she's capable of and she doesn't express it. But I have no doubt that if she had the ability, that's exactly what she would do. Hmm. Very good. Well, Ephra's not taking no for an answer. Looking up at the still light sky... The planet's moons are already rising, and they're once more bursting with fullness. She has to get home before it gets dark. The girl grabs and shakes a wide-eyed Will by the shoulders, angrily ordering him to get her that piece of Don's hair and bring it to her this evening. The boy's too startled by her sudden change of demeanor to answer, but watches warily as she storms out of the Jupiter campsite. Once she's gone, Will plugs the robot's power pack back in and asks him... Do you understand her, robot? Affirmative. Well, then explain it to me. Female guise deceptive. Creature's behavior and or mental processes not subject to natural laws of cause and effect. Exercise caution in dealing with creature and members of her family. Golly, and Dr. Smith's over there. 
I'd better go find out what she's up to. Now, how did the robot compute all that, Kurt, if he had his power pack removed that whole time? That didn't make any sense. Well, uh, because the men who programmed him all had similar sexist stereotypes when they installed his memory banks, you know. I don't, I don't know for sure, but it was pretty clear that they had the robot's power pack removed so he couldn't stand up to Ephra when she was basically threatening him in her presence. You know, when, he, when she grabbed him and started shaking him... You know, the robot would not normally tolerate that. So it did seem odd that he seemed to have heard it, though, with his power pack out. I admit that was weird. Yeah, it was weird. Well, hearing the robot's report, Will races out of the camp. Cutting inside the Jupiter 2, we're in Dr. Smith's stateroom. And turns out he's not back at the Cropper's campsite. He's sitting on his bunk packing a large suitcase. The good doctor seems to be in a very jolly mood as he tucks in the last items into his luggage. Unannounced, Maureen slides open Smith's accordion door. (laughs) Careful, Maureen. Like my dad always warned me, if you don't knock, you can't complain about what you see. Yeah, especially with (laughs) Dr. Zachary, please. (laughs) Exactly. Mom asks Smith if he's seen Will anywhere. Not for several hours, he replies. Noticing the good doctor's bulging suitcase, she asks if he's packing. Indeed he is. Confused, she asks, why? Marine, don't ask why. This is a golden opportunity you may never get again. Offer to help. (laughs) Exactly. Zipping up the case, Smith tells Marine that he'd hoped to make the announcement in the presence of everyone. But he really doesn't mind letting her be the first to hear the good news. Just then, Professor Robinson arrives by Smith's door with a what-now look on his face, closely followed by the rest of the castaways, except for Will, of course. They're all very curious at the unexpected happenings. Delighted, Smith springs up from the bunk, then takes center stage for his grand performance. Yes, exciting news of a romantic nature always attracts listeners, my dear friends. You see before you the happiest man in the world. Sibylla has promised to be my wife. Everyone's mouth falls open in shock. Everyone except for Don, who blurts out, Not the witch. (laughs) I shall treat that slow with the contempt it deserves. John warns Dr. Smith that he's examined some of the plants the aliens are raising under a microscope, and they contain the deadliest virus he's ever seen. Wagging his finger, the groom-to-be lectures... Nonsense, Professor. Your xenophobia is showing a fear of strangers. <laughs> wow, that's projection on steroids. What happened to the old Dr. Smith who was always warning of deadly invaders spitting flame and cosmic dust? Yeah, it sounds like Smith has quit being a Trumpster Republican and has become a liberal Democrat, open borders and all. <laughs> <laughs> the Major smells a rat and innocently asks where this marriage is to take place. On this planet? He answers reverently, Regrettably, no, since there's no one here with the authority to solemnize such an auspicious ceremony. Oh, no, no, no. I shall travel to Earth with Sibylla and her dear family as their guests. Just as Don thought, Smith's got it all figured out. A free ride back to Earth, if he ever gets there, and Sibylla can't even sue Smith for breach of promise when he ditches her. Don's heard enough and walks away in disgust. Your bobs fall on death ears, Major. Turning to the rest of the family, no one wants to look Smith in the eye, much less congratulate him. Appearing hurt, he meekly mentions that he'd wanted to invite them all to a little reception, with Judy and Penny as flower girls, and the robot as best man. Hmm. (laughs) No one says a word. Well, isn't anyone going to wish me luck as I embark on this sea of matrimony? 
Only Maureen can manage a disappointed, Oh, Dr. Smith. (laughs) Cut to the quick, Smith replies, I see. Picks up his suitcase, and then, I bid you adieu. Then he marches out of his cabin to begin a life of marital bliss, or whatever fate awaits him. When he's gone, Judy asks the parents, Well, can't we stop him? Shaking his head in dismay, the professor answers, Ever try to stop an irresistible force? Oh boy. Don't worry, Judy. Something tells me you haven't seen the last of good old Dr. Smith. Wow, but I was a little surprised they were so cold about seeing him go. I mean, wish the guy well and ask him to take a message back with him to Earth, you know? I mean, what's the harm in being polite? Instead, they act really, really pissed. They should be dancing and uncorking the bubbly, don't you think? Yeah, they should be happy. I mean, I think most people would be happy to see the troublemaker gone, but they seem to just be focusing on the fact that he's basically conning (laughs) this alien woman into a false marriage. You know, it's like he wants his free ride back to Earth. So that's the big thing that they're disappointed in. Uh, (laughs) Where are their priorities? (laughs) Well, I mean, can you imagine Smith ever marrying for love? I mean, really? (laughs) There's always going to be an angle in it. I mean, if he's ever going to get married, it's going to be for some other reason. Money or yes. a trip back to Earth, or both. Indeed. Next, with the act coming to a close, we see Will is still on his way to the Cropper's camp. By now, night has fallen, and the music is telling us that there's danger lurking nearby. The boy pauses by some rocks. Thinking out loud, he says, I think I'd better get back. I don't know why I'm doing this anyway. He'll be okay, I hope. But before he can turn around and head back, Some strange but familiar sounds waft through the air, diverting our young castaway's attention. The camera cuts over to the cropper's overgrown garden of monster plants. Giant petals, vines, and fronds from a menagerie of supersized blossoms undulate rhythmically as they sing their weird alien plant dinnertime song. Curious, Will steps closer for a better look. But why? (laughs) These should look very familiar, son. Don't you remember when one of those things ate your sister a few weeks ago? Well, you know, Will, the more dangerous it is, the more irresistible it becomes. Yes. Well, before he gets swallowed whole by one of those big green things, and before we go to break, another sound cuts through the clatter that the plants are making. This time, it's the ferocious growl of a nearby familiar predator that we almost forgot all about. Turning around... Will's eyes become wide as saucers when he sees emerge from the shadows the lumbering figure of that hairy old wolfman. And what's worse, he's only a few yards away, trapped between a forest of deadly monster plants on one side and a man-eating werewolf on the other. And no robot to get him out of this jam. Our young Will Robinson faces a devil's choice here, Kurt. What will he do? How can he possibly survive? He can't. He's a goner. Not only will they lose Smith in this episode, but also will pity that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks, I guess we'll have to wait until we return from this word from our sponsor to find out how all this turns out. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by... Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com.
When we return from the break to start the final act, the werewolf is on the attack. He's advancing closer and closer to a backpedaling Will Robinson. The camera gives us another good, quick close-up of the beast's hideous face. And yes, those fangs are still glistening, early white in the moonlight. Now only a few feet separate the predator from its prey. Will stares back at the creature intently, maintaining eye contact on the monster as Dr. Smith had earlier advised. But in doing so, he fails to notice that he's backstepping directly toward one of those hungry monster plants. Sure enough, before the wolfman can get his claws on Will, the boy falls backwards into the clutches of that monster plant's deadly petals. Swallowing him like a bug in a Venus flytrap. The camera cuts away from the action to show us Ephra running through the plantation calling out to the night for her brother Keel. She's clearly frustrated that she can't find the darn fool. Just then, she hears the sound of Will calling for help. Help! Somebody get me out of here! And races along to investigate. Stumbling upon the scene, she sees the growling werewolf next to the giant cyclamen. But instead of reacting with fear, she instantly begins yelling angrily at the beast, ordering him to get Will out of the hungry plant's overgrown blossom. For some reason, the hairy monster complies with her instructions, lifting Will out of the flower and setting him down without a scratch. As soon as Will's safely out of the plant, Ephra starts furiously hitting the werewolf on the back and orders him to get on back home, calling him Keel in the process. Ephra, don't kick the dog just because you're angry at Don for turning you down. Despite a few angry growls, the beast does as he's told and lumbers back towards the hillbilly spaceship. Okay, I think it was pretty obvious, but now it's explicitly clear to us, and probably will too, that Keel and the werewolf are one and the same. Ephra grabs the young Robinson and angrily asks if he brought her that lock of Don's hair that she wanted. Still shaken up from the attack, he answers truthfully that he didn't. Narrowing her eyes, she bitterly tells the cute little fella that she'd have left him in the plant to be eat up if she'd known that. Too late now, she reckons, it's about time for the croppers to be leaving. The alien girl adds with a grim smile that that's more than she can say for Will and his family. Then, tweaking the boy's cheek one last time, she turns around and runs off into the night after her hairy brother, Keel. So I guess we now know the real reason for that hair ring is to provide Ephra an excuse to save Will from that monster and the plant. I don't know why she didn't throw him back into the plant, but I guess we're supposed to be glad that she didn't. But another interesting thing is, for you, you were wondering whether Keel was the werewolf. For me, I, I just assumed the werewolf was a character we hadn't seen. I didn't assume it was anybody else. I thought it was their pet, is what I thought. Oh, okay. Interesting. Until this point. Now, you know, it's apparent that it is. Okay. The, the werewolf is kind of weird in this whole thing, other than the fact that, you know, they're all kind of creepy characters. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's kind of a little Adam's family bewitched on pre -planus. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Cushman relates a funny script note from the network censors about this scene. They, they didn't seem to mind the uh, Ephra scenes, but they, they had a comment about this one. They demanded that Will not look too terror-stricken as he was being menaced by a deadly wolfman and a man-eating monster plant. <laughs> I guess Bill Mummy did his best to comply, but <laughs> I don't know. 
Yeah, you know why they would say that. I I have noticed that my six year old and three year old get scared by certain scenes in Lost in Space, but it's usually triggered by the music rather than the monsters. So it's kind of funny that the network was always focusing on the wrong thing. If they really wanted to tame it down to the lowest level for kids, they should have dumbed it down with the music rather than the actual motion picture. But you know, I'm glad they didn't figure that out because this was the saving grace. Well, it's a good point because the music saves a lot of these scenes. The music makes something that's not so scary seem a lot worse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's an interesting case study there you provide. Interesting. Well, those kids could be good for something every once in a while. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are worth a tax break. I mean, <laughs> well, what they do for me is they provide me an excuse to have Lost in Space running all the time. I wouldn't get away with it otherwise. That's funny. Your kids are still liking it. My kids are sick of it now. It's like, not more Lost in Space. <laughs> I bet they couldn't say that when uh, Ephra was coming on the screen, though. No. You know, Lisa's probably the only one in the house that doesn't like the Ephra. <laughs> she just calls her that little hussy. <laughs> She's on Judy's side. <laughs> yeah, we may not have a vampire in Lost in Space, but we certainly had the vamp. Exactly. Good one. Will's now all alone in the field of monster plants. He pauses for a moment to recover his senses and get his bearings, then strikes out to warn Dr. Smith. Meanwhile, back at the Cropper spaceship, Dr. Smith is seated on the porch steps next to a bored-looking Sibylla. Stroking her hand, he's continuing to whisper more sweet nothings to her. But the mood is interrupted when Will scampers up to the pair of doe-eyed soulmates. He tells the beaming Dr. Smith, I don't think you should stay here any longer. I don't intend to, my boy. Very soon now, we shall be making a most eventful journey. Will, did your parents tell you that Sibylla and I are betrothed? I can see that for myself, but I don't think much of it. You know, it's fun to see how much of a buzzkill Will is with Sibylla. You could just feel the barometric pressure drop every time he says something. Nobody asked you for your opinion, Sonny. I'm just trying to figure out what you want with him. Really, Will? You're very precocious for an Earth child. I could dispose of you very quickly, you know. But, Zachary, you're the master of this house now. Send this child away. Yes, dear. Will, be a good boy and go back home. Dr. Smith, I don't think you know what you're doing. I'm afraid I cannot discuss this with a mere child. Dr. Smith, you don't belong with her or with them. You belong with us. And you don't know what terrible things are going to happen to you if you go with them. And you'll be too far away for us to help you. I could dissolve him very easily from here. I could squash him squishy. Dr. Smith, her female guise is deceptive. She's not an Earth creature and you are. That's what the robot told me. As you can plainly see, the robot is a silly goose who knows not whereof he speaks. It's no use, is it? No use at all. I guess I won't be seeing much of you anymore. It's not very likely. Then this is goodbye, Dr. Smith. I know we've had our arguments and fights before, but but they never really meant much. And I'm sorry for the times I wasn't very nice to you. I'm going to miss you, Dr. Smith. Thank you, dear boy, and I shall miss you, too. After we are married, and if we happen to be passing this way again, I shall send down a wedding picture and a piece of wedding cake. Ha! Yes, dear. (laughs) That wedding cake bit causes Sibylla to choke back a little laugh, then close her eyes in satisfaction. The boy then says one last, 
goodbye, Dr. Smith, then heads back to the ship as the sad-looking doctor waves at what he must have thought was his final goodbye, Will. A little while later, Will's returned to the nighttime Robinson campsite, and he's standing in front of Mom when Dad walks up and starts to lay into him for yet again disappearing without permission. Before the professor gets too far into the lecture, Maureen stops him, explaining that the boy was doing a good deed, trying to convince Dr. Smith to change his mind about his marriage. Dad smiles at his son, calling him a little Cupid in reverse, but as they can plainly see, Will had no luck. The boy says there's nothing left to do but give the couple a wedding gift. Maureen laughs at the thought, but John thinks it's a good idea and suggests a few cans of paint for that old hillbilly spaceship of theirs. You know, I'll have to remember that stellar idea for a wedding gift, a couple cans of paint. Yeah, how romantic. (laughs) Yeah. They'll worry about it tomorrow. It's getting late. With a friendly pop on the butt, he tells Will it's way past his bedtime. But the boy's not finished yet. He forgot to tell them. He saw the werewolf again. And that crop they've planted is growing out of control all over the trail. He stumbled into it, but Ephra got him out. Marine asks what happened to that werewolf. Will says that's what bothered him. Ephra called the creature Keel, and when she gave him an order, he obeyed her. Will states flatly, you know, I think Keel and that werewolf are one and the same. It's a startling revelation that brings a look of mystery and dread to the parents' faces. Later that night, we're back in the lower deck of the ship, and for the second night in a row, the Robinson slumber is interrupted by strange sounds from outside the ship. Everyone piles out of their cabins. Marine wonders what it could be, but Will correctly identifies those frog pond sounds as monster plants. The castaways race upstairs by ladder and electronic elevator. When they reach the upper deck, they're confronted by a sight and sounds that are almost a frame-for-frame reprisal of a similar visual scene from Attack of the Monster Plants. Although, again, no one bothers to mention it. It is a good visual, though, because the entire main viewport is completely obscured by giant man-eating flowers, fronds, and vines that are all singing that loud alien plant song. Will says, now he understands what Ephra meant before. Those plants would have eaten him. Well, at least they remembered how they handled this situation the last time, because the professor orders Major West to break out the gas guns. Oh, great. We've gone from recycling the props to actually recycling the plot solutions as well. (laughs) But the audience will remember that was over 10 weeks ago, you know. Uh... (laughs) Aww. Just like last time, Don passes out those familiar-looking space-age sprayers to Marine and the male members of the party. Marine instructs the girls to remain behind after they're gone, close the hatch, and don't open it for any reason. Well, she might want to rephrase that slightly. I mean, sometimes kids take things a little too literally, but seriously, why are they taking a 12-year-old boy along to fight the plants, but leaving two older girls back at the ship, Kurt? I'm sensing a little male-centric bias here. Yeah, it's his uh, white male privilege. (laughs) On John's instructions, they open the airlock, and the adults and Will race out of the ship to fight the cropper's monster crop. As soon as they're outside, our castaways start spraying the plants with supercooled gas to clear a safe path from the ship. And 
just as before, the overgrown cyclamen start to wilt and fall away before anyone gets turned into human miracle grow. I guess they're smart enough to keep that freeze gas on hand at all times. It sounds like a good idea. Yeah, but, you know, they should be careful because some of those plants could be their nieces and nephews from Cyclamen Judy. Ooh, uh-huh. good point. Back at the cropper ship, Smith's still sitting on the porch steps, lost in thought as Sibylla struggles to handle some oversized boxes of gear. She complains that Smith's letting her do all the work. No, if she only knew, this is only the beginning of the rest of her life. (laughs) He makes a slight effort to assist, then quickly sits back down in his rump. He's been musing about their future destination. His fiancée smiles and informs him that... That's already settled. We're heading for the constellation of the big whale. Yes, yes, of course. But can we, do you think, get there by way of Earth? I have a few very precious belongings there. Earth is entirely too far out of the way. Besides, I've been there. Tiny, isn't it? I don't like it. But dear heart... Starting to object, he's interrupted by Ephra, who brings back a couple of those precious potted little green things that didn't take. Ma... These two didn't take. We'll have to put them in the greenhouse till next planting. Where's your brother Keel? Oh, he's still out there. He hasn't finished his howling yet. Right on cue, we hear the distant sound of a wolf's howl. Smith's face turns grim. He bolts up off his keister upon hearing the unwelcome grisly noises. Did she say howling? But you won't have to worry about that, Zachary, now that you're one of the family. Just keep an eye on him at the time of the full moon. And the rest of the time, he's quite easy to handle once you get the hang of it. But Ephra... Ephra can be a trial at times, a real problem child. But I know you'll be masterful enough to handle her, too. Besides, she only practices her little tricks of witchcraft when she's bored or irritated. And then she does some pretty spooky things. She does? Hmm. Of course, she inherited those powers from her father and not from me. My darling little witch child, he used to call her. She absolutely gets carried away when the plants are eating. She may ask you to hover in the sky. She may suspend you up there. But if she does, you just outsmart her. You hang up there and close your eyes. It's better not to look while the plants are eating. It gets very messy. What do the plants do, Sibylla? They consume, Zachary. They consume everything. Until there's not a living thing left not a stick not a thing now aren't you glad that you proposed to me and i accepted you you're safe with us am i sibylla uh-huh now you go and strap yourself in and i'll be with you as soon as i can find keel Oh, 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 oh,
Sibylla, I just thought of something. My my tape recorder. I would be lost without it. I, I'd better go and get it. Oh, no, you mustn't go back there now, Zachary. The plants are eating. Oh, no, you'd be swallowed alive. Zachary, please don't go. Backing away in terror from Sibylla, it's suddenly dawning on Smith that everything the castaways warned him about has turned out to be true. And now he's in deadly peril. Seeing her man backpedaling for the exits attracts the alien woman's attention, and she repeatedly begs him not to go, but he keeps on trucking in reverse. Unfortunately, his retreat is blocked at the edge of the Cropper's settlement by the untimely arrival of Keel, still in full werewolf form. Smith backs right into his future stepson's arms and gets a loving bear hug and some friendly growls that send the doctor into a full screaming meltdown of epic proportions. Zachary, come back! Just tell him that you're going to be his daddy, Zachary. He won't harm you if he knows you're going to be his daddy. Zachary, come back! Somehow, Dr. Smith manages to break free from Wolfman Keel, and he runs for his life away from the space cropper ship. The spurned lady is now left standing at the altar, empty-handed, and turns her ire on the groveling, gurring Keel Wolf. She blames her hairy son for scaring off Smith, and sends him to his room, but comedically reminds him not to forget to brush his teeth. Well, that explains how pretty his fangs were, doesn't it? Uh. Yeah, but at least it does tie in nice with the toothpaste ads. But, you know, I thought it was interesting that they basically ride it so that he chickens out and he runs back to the Jupiter 2. When in reality, you know, once he learned what was in store for all of them, really his safest course of action is to stay with the family, the hillbillies, because the Robinsons are all going to be eaten. And she says herself, the plants are now starting to eat. So not only is he putting himself at greater danger going back to the Jupiter 2, even if he makes it to the Jupiter 2, he'll still be in danger because those plants are going to be taking over the entire planet. He doesn't know that they're gassing those plants. So he doesn't know that there's another option or another solution. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's true. I guess he was just panicking in the moment, wasn't thinking two steps ahead. He he never was as good of a chess player as the robot, I suppose, in this case. But that's a good point. His safest course would have been to stay there, wouldn't it? <laughs> just saying. Oh, well. Cutting back to the Robinson groundkeeping crew, they're engulfed in clouds of supercooled gas, still hard at their work, using their futuristic herbicide sprayers to cut down those croaking monster plants by the bushel load. Just then, the panicked Dr. Smith comes rushing into the frame, screaming thanks of praise that he's found his fellow castaways and been saved. Oh, oh, what a blessing, what a blessing that you're still here and alive. Oh, that dreadful woman. I tried to warn you, says Will. He knows, but there's no time to waste on that now. John orders Smith to take a gas gun and help them kill off the rest of those dangerous plants. The work goes quickly with one giant blossom after another dropping dead until eventually the last croaking plant topples over and goes silent. As the gas drifts away into the night, a satisfied Professor Robinson declares, Well, I guess that takes care of them, but we'll keep an eye out on the way back. I guess so, but what about the croppers? Surely they won't be happy to see all their hard work destroyed. But we never get to find out, because just at that moment, we hear the sound of rocket engines firing 
which causes our space pioneers to look up at the star-filled sky. We're shown a familiar-looking shot of a spaceship heading up into space and off to parts unknown. In the last little bit of recycling, it's a stock shot that we first saw way back in Welcome Stranger, and we'll see it again. Uh, It's amazing how Hapgood's tiny little ship, a one-man space capsule, has the exact same size underbelly as that house-sized porch ship that the hillbillies had. Isn't that something? (laughs) Amazing, yes. (laughs) Seen one, has seen them all. Watching the hillbilly spaceship grow smaller and smaller, Smith seems to change his mind yet again. Gone. Marine soothes Dr. Smith, reminding him that they really didn't know each other that well. Yes, but we would have made such sublime music together. Shaking their heads, the rest of our castaways turn and head back to the ship, followed closely after by the lovelorn Dr. Zachary Smith. Like they say, tis better to have loved and lost than to have lost your love and life. And that was a close one for Smith. It really was. It's yet another whimsical, light-hearted, all's well that ends well conclusion to an episode that certainly started out on a much different note. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on the space croppers. Ah, well, before I answer that, let me tell you a story. The first time I watched this, I was very sleepy and I was enjoying it, but I still fell asleep somewhere past the middle. Then when I woke up, I missed so much that the ending didn't make very much sense. But I figured, no biggie, you know, I always watch these things more than once, so I'll sort it out the next time. Well, the next time I saw it, I was wide awake and I didn't miss any parts, and it still didn't make much sense. In fact, (laughs) I must have only nodded out a second or two the first time because it looked like the same exact story. So to say that this story had plot holes in it is putting it mildly. Now, with all that being said, this episode still has a lot going for it. It has great atmosphere, lots of mystery, uh, captivating actors, and a cool monster. It kind of reminded me a lot of the Ghost in Space episode because it's fun to watch, yet it's just frustrating to think about because you leave thinking everything was top-notch except the actual script. It needed a rewrite or some polish or something before production. The ending was rushed, they blast off and leave all sorts of loose ends, and it feels like they basically ran out of time. Now, I felt like they should have renamed it the Space Witches rather than the Space Croppers because the hillbilly aspect was rather corny, while the witchcraft element was far more intriguing. I'm still not sure I understand what the purpose of all the plants were. They grow them for some reason. Maybe it was to create fuel. Remember, she says that they had their own brand, and then they leave them to to destroy the planet? But I like your theory on that one, actually. It's also a bit concerning that they say they visited Earth. Does this mean they left a crop of those plants back on terra firma? And that the Robinsons are not only the first family to leave Earth, but they could very well be the only family to have survived, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I guess the whole moral of the story is don't try to make sense of it all because you're just going to pee on your own parade. Just enjoy the style, ignore the missing substance, and go with the flow. This isn't a bad episode. And, and actually, somebody told me this episode really sucked, and that helped me because I was thinking it was going to be really, really bad. But when I watched it, I was pleasantly surprised. It's not good. But, you know, it's not bad. It's just kind of middle of the road. There's a lot to like and plenty to dislike in it. So, 
all those scenes are pretty darn good. It's just that when you try to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, they don't really fit. So it was basically a lost opportunity that needed some script improvements. Well, I'll start off by saying this episode really does represent a watershed for me. I know that there are some purists out there who discount every episode after The Hungry Sea, but I'm not in that camp. And while I agree that those are some of the best episodes in the series, I can't really think of a single episode that we've watched so far that I didn't enjoy, and I wouldn't put any of those in the Never Watch Again category, and I wouldn't put the Space Croppers in the Never Watch Again category. I do have to say, though, that the absurd fantasy elements in this one really kind of overshadowed some of the positive aspects. And so I think that it stands out to me as a drop-off in quality from a story standpoint. The sad thing is that there are elements in here that I really do like. I, I like the werewolf, although it didn't really play a central role in the story. I like the guest cast, especially Sherry Jackson, as we mentioned many times. And Gene Polito's nighttime photography, as usual, was very atmospheric. I even like the return of the monster plants. It just seemed to me that the potential for a good story was degraded by having this whole silly hillbilly, hillbilly, Mm -hmm. yeah, the hillbilly alien bit and really going for broke on the comedy. So I just don't think this one worked out, but maybe I'm wrong. One possible explanation for the story's radical drift into camp humor is that Packer's initial treatment was one of the first scripts written in late January 1966 after the January 12th premiere of Batman. And in fairness, I should also point out that despite my problems with this story, the TV critics found this installment very, very good. They called it just quirky enough to work, which compared to the critical reviews Lost in Space got for the more serious episodes must have pleased Uncle Irwin or at least made an impact. Even more pleasing to Alan, though, was that although the space croppers still lost out to Batman in the ratings, they were already starting to gain back viewers and would eventually wind up taking back the number one spot from the Cape Crusader. So after all that, what do I know? You know, I think one of the things about this episode is the expectations. Uh, Several people told me that this was like the beginning of the end, that some very bad episodes come after this, and this is the first really bad episode. I didn't think it was really bad at all, but their expectations of poor performance made me enjoy this a lot more than I would have. So now I'm worried that me saying that it's a good episode might have the opposite effect, and people will go in there thinking it's going to be really good, and they'll be disappointed. But, you know, I still can't help but say, hey, if I watch an episode more than once or twice and I'm still entertained— that's good. That's not a D. It's not even a C. That's a B minus or C plus at very worst. So, you know, it does have that going for it. What you just said about expectations is a great point. And I want to make clear, I'm not calling this a bad episode. It's different. I don't call it unwatchable either. I've watched it several times. Like I said, there's a lot of things in it. It's just radically different from what I expected. So that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. It's not only not unwatchable, it is fun to watch. There are a lot yes. of parts in that are fun to watch, and the parts that are yes. fun to watch far outnumber the uh, parts that are not fun to watch. And especially if you compare it to television today, there is so much of that insipid comedy. My wife watches this stuff all the time. Yeah. And it's just sort of like, you know, she hates me to watch it with her because I give the punchline before it comes out. It's that predictable every yeah. single time. Yes. One thing I would also point out is the series has been evolving. Do this thought experiment. It just occurred to me. Watch The Derelict. And then watch yeah. <laughs> the Space Croppers back to back. You would think you're watching almost two totally different TV series. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's interesting. We're a frog in a pot that's being slowly, <laughs> having the heat slowly turned up on us, but I'm still enjoying it. I am enjoying it, guys. So yeah, we love the characters. We love the setting and the fact that they've kind of turned the 
the theme on its head isn't enough to alienate us, you know, no pun intended, no. but it's, uh, yeah. you know, we still, we're still going to follow it because they've got all those other good things going for it. And this guy was a good writer. There's very good dialogue in here. It just has, you know, some, some holes that they could have dealt with better. Exactly. Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. The scene opens outside the Jupiter 2 several nights later. Dr. Smith and the rest of the family ramble out of the ship as Will finishes loading some gear into the chariot while the robot sits quietly in the back seat. Turns out the men folk are setting out on another expedition seeking a fresh supply of water, leaving the female castaways and Smith back home to hold down the fort. After the chariot pulls away and out of view, Marine activates the force field, and Smith decides it's such a pleasant evening he might just sleep under the stars. What could possibly happen on a quiet, peaceful night like this? Abruptly, the camera jumps some distance away, where we see a humanoid dressed in tattered clothes hiding in the rocks, when suddenly a large pair of howling, faceless, hairy beasts enter the area, followed closely by a different humanoid speaking English in a familiar accent. The stranger's wearing a uniform, but instead of a riding crop, he appears to be carrying a whip in one hand and a laser pistol in the other. He scolds his beasts about losing the trail. With a crack of his whip, he orders them on. But before we can figure out what all this means, Kurt, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Wow, Kurt. Something in the tone of that officer's voice tells me the Robinsons better watch their P's and Q's, or they might wind up spending the rest of the duration in the cooler. Uh, I see nothing. I know nothing. I hear nothing. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 26th episode of Lost in Space titled All That Glitters. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at Alpha Control Podcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via Libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.